welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a legend, a DC hardcore legend from the band The Untouchables, from the band Faith, from the band Ignition, from the band The Warmers, from the band Hammered Hulls, a supergroup Hammered Hulls, more on them in a second, the incredible, the incomparable, making his return to the show, Alec Mackay. More on that all in one second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That and an Instagram page and a Facebook page for this podcast are all run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at leftfordamian. If you want to support the show, head over to turnedoutapunk.com and grab a t-shirt. Thank you to everyone who has done that. Tell all your friends about this podcast. Let them know that what we do over here each and every week or subscribe to it or rate it on your platform of choice. I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. You can find out more information at fuckedup.cc, including about our brand new record called Oberon, our brand new 12-inch called Oberon. It's out on the incredible Tank Crimes records run by my friend, Scotty Karate. Order it, check it out. I'm very proud of it. It's heavy. It's probably the heaviest fucked up record in a long time. There's also more information about some upcoming shows, including the end of October. We're going to be playing uh, some shows in Toronto. Come come to Toronto. Should I do a live podcast? Did I talk about this already? I think I might try and do a live podcast on the Saturday. So live turned out of punk. If you want to come, I'm gonna, <laughs> I just, I don't know why I'm going to do it, but we're going to do it. We're going to figure it all out. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So once again, find out more information about fucked up over at fuckedup.cc and, uh, hopefully see you up here in Toronto for those shows. We also got records, lots of reissues for sale too on labels. Find out more information over there. All right. On to today's show. I'm very excited about today's show. I want you to hear it today on the show. As I said off the top, Alec Mackay is here. Alec Mackay, of course, is a punk rock legend. There's no other way to slice it. I'm sure you get... Very uh, upset with me for saying it, but there's how do you how else you describe someone that played in The Untouchables, Faith, Ignition, The Warmers, and now Hammered Hulls? That's that's doing it like five times, you know. Most of us we're lucky if we can do it once in one band. Here's a guy who's done it time and time again. Alec has been on the show before. Shout out to my friend and Alec's friend Dante for hooking it up on the Turn Out of Punk live tour dates that we did way back when. If you want some deep cut, great Turn Out of Punk content, check out those live episodes that came from the live Turn Out of Punk tour that Chris O'Toole and I went on way back in 2016, 15, 16. And on that tour, we, uh, we had some great shows, including the one in DC where Alec was there, came on stage, told some great stories. I've actually, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to clip it and put it before this episode so you can hear it. And then you can go back and listen to the rest of the live in DC episode. But this way you can kind of hear how Alec first got into punk, because this is almost like a continuation of that initial conversation. Because in the live setting, you don't really get a chance to go deep with someone like you do when you're doing a normal episode. So we went deep this time, this long episode. So if you have heard the Live in DC episode, you might want to skip ahead 30 or so minutes at the start of this episode. Once again, this is a very long episode. 
but it is a good one. Holy, I'm excited for you to hear it. As I said off the top, Alec is currently in a super group. There's no other way, other way to describe this band. Hammered Hulls featuring former guests of the show, our buddy Mary Timoney, and uh, it, just an incredible band. They put on a great 7-inch a couple years ago, and now Careening is coming out. And uh, I'm very excited for this record. It's the last record, they think, that's going to be recorded at Inner Ear Studios. And what a way to go out. This band is uh, is fantastic and kind of continues. You know, Alex like is like a, an auteur singer to me. You can kind of see his presence, obviously, in every band that he's in and fronts. But he's always doing something different with his instrument, which is his voice. And, yeah, a front person's front person, if there ever was one. Ooh, I, I, I don't know. I could go on forever just talking about Alec, but we go on forever talking to each other. So I think you'd probably prefer to hear that. Everyone, please sit back, relax, and enjoy Alec Mackay on Turned Out a Punk. There you go. Yeah. Which, how much of this equipment is? All of it. You have to use every single microphone, Alec. <laughs> no, it's just this one. What's that one, doing? That's just to get the audience cheers. Well, because the audience keeps exploding, and when people listen to the podcast, they want to hear all the people. So, Alec, uh, thanks for coming to this. How was the HR movie? It's really beautiful, actually. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's a complicated guy with an amazing amount of um, history that most of us aren't aware of. Um, he's, he's been through a lot of different things, and it's in there. And, um, yeah, it's pretty uplifting, I would say, in a weird way. Well... We're all going to see it, yeah. but we're not here to talk about that movie. This ain't Siskel and Ebert. It's turned out a punk. Yeah. And I'm going to start... did a good job on it. It's really, you gotta, you'll see it. But... We're, we're all going to see it. There's no way. Yeah, like, I'm like, that's, like, right. that's, like a, that's like a standard issue kind of movie that I think everyone's going to wind up seeing. Right. You know, like who doesn't want to see an HR documentary? Harley Flanagan, HR, <laughs> Jerry A. There's certain people that I will see that movie as soon as it comes out. But I want to see the Alec Mackay movie right now. I want to see Alec. How did you get into punk? Remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah, uh, my my oldest sister uh, brought home some. She was I can't even begin to. She went to Africa and was living with the Maasai and something something. Went to Greece, was picking olives. Ended up in England. Bought some records. Came home for Christmas. And the records she had were Eddie and the Hot Rods, The Damned, uh, Generation X. Um, uh, there was a 10-inch uh, guillotine sampler yeah. um, with X-ray specs on it. Um, anyway, that's that was the first introduction. And then um, in that same time, I would see Patti Smith at uh, the McDonough Arena at, at uh, Georgetown University. With Root Boy Slim and the Sex Change Band, and and that was amazing. I think I was twelve. And <laughs> yeah. I was like flashing the American flag. I mean, um, it was blowing my mind. Yeah. So yeah. Where, where, how'd you? Where did you hear Patty Smith for the first time? Were you already a fan by then? No, I never heard of her. Um, no, it was a, uh, my next door neighbor's dad uh, was going, and he knew that I was in, like enjoying punk rock or into punk rock, and he's, he kind of like dared me to come with him. <laughs> and he paid for the ticket, uh, but I, I, I must have been, I think it was 1978, so I was probably 13. It's just you and your best friend's dad? Uh, no, no, he, his, his son came. Okay, I'm going to be like, <laughs> <laughs> hey, stay home. I'm still not sure why <laughs> yeah, my dad did it. 
but uh, I really, I didn't even, I can't, I can't answer how that all came to be. I just remember being there. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was, so those are my earliest. Uh, yeah. Punk rock memories. Yeah. So where'd you kind of go from that Patti Smith show? Like, and obviously you've got these punk records now. Like, were you... Were you aware of other stuff that was kind of happening around locally in America other than Patti Smith at that point? Or? No. Um, I was really like radio rock person. I was in, totally into skating, mm-hmm. um, listening to just heavy metal on the radio. Um, anything with energy was my music. Uh, but that's the thing that put punk rock. When I first heard you know, the Ramones and, I mean, really uh, early punk stuff, the energy was like dialed up into a completely different zone that I uh, couldn't, even though when I listen to them now, some of the pacing is similar, but the in, the actual uh, impetus is so different, and that completely telegraphed for me. I, I heard that, and immediately it was into punk rock. Um, so, so, yeah, I didn't know much about uh, music beyond where I was uh, on, on the radio, but then I did start going to see music Locally, I went to uh, Fort Reno, which is an uh, outdoor music place. That uh, I mean, within like three months, I was actually playing. You know, I mean, it wasn't just going in and uh, being in the uh, looking up at the. You weren't a passive observer. Yeah, at that I was point. like, how can I get there? Yeah. Um, uh, but there was there weren't many like uh, high energy bands here then. Um, but then the Bad Brains uh, saw them and, uh, and and met them and knew them and they and they that was really like the um, that was the big challenge. You know, they really they were stepping it up a notch and we were all trying to catch up to them. Do you remember the first time you saw them? I can't tell you the exact like show. I can't like describe yeah. this show. I can mostly what I remember the, my first like completely tangible memory is sitting. In a car with HR, my, it was my brother's car driving around, and he had a, a 1970 Duster uh, with a tape deck that was wired into the um, dashboard, sitting on the front seat. And then we would we had um, like wooden stereo speakers that we held in our lap in the back, so we could play really loud. And, <laughs> That's just like a standard driving around. Yes, and just literally <laughs> driving around so you can listen to music. That's awesome. Um, and his, uh, it was HR and. Maybe Daryl, I guess. Um, and I don't even know what we were, we were taking them to go to rehearsal or something, but they were playing us a recording of their, like a demo. And, you know, it's fucking minds being blown. And then as soon as their thing was done, then HR came to me and was like, you know, what you, what's, what you, what's your band? What do you got going? And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, uh, but he was so, like, inviting and wanted, like, completely encouraging for everybody around him. And, uh, so that's kind of like my first bad brains. Um, that's the part that I the the memory that uh, sticks with it the hardest. Were you like a black market babies fan too, or not as yeah, much? Yeah, I mean it's funny. Dante and I are very close, but I'm still like a little bit older. Mm-hmm. And um, and black market baby, I actually I remember those guys before they were black market. There was a band called Snitch with um, with Boyd and. Um, It was, yeah, Paul, but Boyd and Paul would come to shows, and Boyd was like this, he's a singer for Black Market, and he's got this crazy uh, cataract eye, and looks like a heavy motherfucker, and he is actually, not looks like, um, and he had a 
he's like half English, I guess, like one of his, maybe his mother's English, but he'd been to England recently and had all this cool English stuff and he had a, a mod shirt with a target on it and he just wanted people to punch him in the fucking chest as hard as they could. And so he's kind of like the, the like heavy mod guy, like tough. <laughs> hard mod. Yeah, super hard mod. And, uh, and that's when I was like, these guys are out of control. But, but also, it was really liberating because there was nothing, uh, there was no, I realized there was no old scar at that point, like when, when people like that are in the show. I, I brought it up to Dante earlier, and because you're slightly older, maybe you had a, a bit of more awareness of it. Was there that division between the old scene and, and the new scene of the, you guys kind of coming up? I think so. Um, it's hard to say who who invented it. I mean, yeah. part of me feels like that's what punk rock was all about. It was like it had to destroy the thing before it so it could begin somewhere. Um, and I guess you do that again and again, whoever you are. And actually, it's what I expect from everybody ever who's did... Um, start like just you know there's a whole it's a it's a I don't want too much baggage for people but you have to begin somewhere and you have to not uh, have too much respect for the past and you can't be slavish about it um, so I think that that was a part of it but then I do for sure when these uh, like when Teen Idols and Untouchables and, and early DC punk bands became sort of the frontier of hardcore um, there was a a whole nother scene ahead of us that were not that impressed um, and had not very encouraging things to say. Um, and granted, we didn't know how to play our instruments and didn't give a shit about uh, whether coming. There was a lot of there's a you know a, a little a chasm there of sorts. Um, but I there was so many bands that I loved and admired who uh, were not like me and not like. I loved True Facts and mm-hmm. uh, Slicky Boys and then um, uh, Texer Benowitz. I mean, this is something that I play to people all the time. He, he was like this 50-year-old Jewish um, kind of redneck guy who was a, the most amazing country uh, rockabilly guy. I mean, really one of my heroes still, and I have no idea what he's up to now. But I would, I loved going to see Texer Benowitz. I mean... I would, we would go with blue hair and all this shit and end up with just a bunch of like older redneck people like who the fuck is this happening um, so there was a lot of blending you know like it really was a blended thing uh, what about white boy did you ever you, uh, I never you? saw them like com- they, I love their records yeah the records um, yeah um, I knew I knew them I knew all about them it was really this peripheral thing but I just never got to see them live well, this, I, I, you know, probably because you didn't live. They always felt like they were separate from even the limp scene. Like it's almost like they're like their little island unto themselves. I suppose. I mean, they like other people. They made their own record labels. Mm-hmm. They put out their record label, mm-hmm. record label called Doodly Squat. Um, and it really was the you know it was a, a father and son you know, team, and then they uh, whoever else played. I can't remember. Um, but they, yeah, they, I can say they're a little bit separate. But no, uh, I don't. There was not. It's hard to say. I mean, there wasn't. It was. It was still. You'd go see anybody. I mean, there really wasn't tip, uh, deliberate separation. Well, you, you brought the Untouchables. How did that? How, like you, you know, touched on it a little bit. How did that come together? Like, how did you put that together? Like, you're a kid. Mm-hmm. I was fourteen. <laughs> um, let's see. I just started at high school and. There was guys a little bit older, a year older than me, who wanted to get a band together. It was um, uh, Eddie Janney and 
Earth Kiros, and they wanted to start a band, and then they just decided that I should be in the band. Um, and I said, okay, okay, but it was up in the air who was going to play what. Eddie was the only person who knew how to play an instrument, like kind of legitimately. And then we needed a drummer, so we got a guy who had a driver's license, and it was old enough to actually drive a car. The key. Right. So mm-hmm. Richard Moore was in the band, and and uh, and at first I think I was the drummer, but then I, I lived in a row house. I couldn't practice because it was too loud. I had a neighbor who didn't like that. <laughs> and uh, so Richard... And you didn't drive, too. No? Yeah. So, uh, so Richard became the drummer, and he's also friends with Jeff Nelson, so Jeff gave him a drum set, and... Um, and then I sang and Bert decided to play and so forth. So, you know, you're super young playing, but like, it's such a key pivotal band to be in. Did it, was there like a following in your high school? Like what would it be like to be a 14 year old kid that was in like a popular band? Cause I was a 14 year old kid in a terrible band that no one liked. Me too. Well, really? No one liked you guys at the time? You don't think? No? Oh, hell no. I mean, later on, maybe after two years, but yeah. in the beginning, no, I, I literally got uh, beaten to a pulp on stage. Yeah. Playing really? at that at Fort is this what's this mic doing? Was this yeah, that's what that's recording you? So this is recording. This no, this, this, that's just for the audience ambient. And what's that? This is for the podcast itself that's okay. going into the thing. I'm just asking. No, I'll just I ask like, away. I believe like, me, <laughs> if you can figure out, <laughs> if you can figure, yeah, if anyone can bring me up more microphones, it's fine. Um, that's a nice one too. I've got this one here too. There we go. Um, yeah, the Untouchables, we, we really didn't, uh, you know, I think Dante sort of talked about the same thing, where we didn't, we began to make music, but never really, it was kind of like, our friends can hear this music. Mm-hmm. And then maybe somebody, like our neighborhood or something like this region. Or definitely your neighbor next door was hearing your drumming. Right, well, he actually, he, he had a heart attack, so I don't want to talk about it. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it wasn't my fault, but I worried that but sometimes. Oh my God. <laughs> he was pretty grumpy. Um, <laughs> What am I talking about? So, 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 we didn't have like a follow. We just were like making music and also, in spite of everything, making music. Like, there was nobody truly encouraging us except for really the closest people around us. Um, and, and we were figuring it out as we went. But, like, I remember rehearsing, we would go to this um, a neighborhood planning council that they agreed to let us use the back room after closing. And it's a freestanding building, you know, so it should be okay. If you wait, just wait, you know, like, one hour until everybody leaves. And we would wait, like, 37 minutes and just, like, oh, fuck that. We're going to start playing. And we'd lock all the doors, draw all the curtains and start and rehearsing. And then they would call the police. And we could hear the police, like, banging on the door. And we just keep the, you know, just don't let the feedback stop because we can't hear you. And then we'd, you know, just run through our set three times, and then to get, like go open the door. Like, oh, hello, what? And uh, so we kind of did things in spite of everything. Um, but it came together, and we began to play more shows. And uh, but I think that our the the way that we were playing, yeah, I did. Uh, you're right. I mean, later on, there um, there was some interest, and in, and uh, I guess it had some sort of an impact. And uh, I don't know what the beginning of that question was. Well, I think it was just I, I think it was just about being in high school and kind of like being in a band. Like I, I think for me also, there's like this fantasy that everyone in your high school would have been a punk kid. Yeah. And it was not like that at all. I imagine. Yeah, I went to a large high school, uh, being a large population, large building even. And the year that I started, my brother was still there, so I was tight with him and all of his friends. Then they all graduated. And then I was basically alone. It was like me and Chris Bald and 
Brendan Canty, and but there was like three thousand kids there, yeah. and like four punk rockers, and also the, you know it was a, just an urban school. I mean, it was tough, and it was also the nineteen eighties. Uh, this city was com- like I don't know how many of you people can remember the nineteen eighties in Washington D.C., but it's, this is a different town. I mean, it's um, it was extremely. Uh, I mean, teachers are being shot in the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not not like even reported in the paper. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. that sucks. But now somebody brings a gun somewhere in the city limits, and the whole place goes nuts. It's like there are guns everywhere. Like mm-hmm. it was a very different situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but going to that school then, that wasn't. I mean, my solace, my team, my crew, the places I went was after school, mm-hmm. uh, or sometimes during school, uh, <laughs> and leaving school. And uh, but, but we'd go out and go to shows and. And uh, that's that was a completely different thing. Too. Looking outside of kind of like what was happening in DC at the time, what were some of the other hardcore bands that you were like really into? Oh my god, uh, many. I mean, I will tell you that uh, um, you know what they call a chirotic chiro- moment. <coughs> this is a time outside of time. This is not about. Um, this is when the world changes completely. I was seeing DOA. Yeah. Um, at, at Madame's organ, uh, they just showed up in a van. They'd driven all, I'd never seen a band do this before. They'd driven all around this continent, not just this country, but this continent. Uh, they showed up to play in this in a living room of a squat, uh, and they killed it. And they played for hours. And when we wouldn't let them leave, they would just they would just piss in the bottle and keep going. And honestly, Dave Gregg pissed in the bottle and just kept on going. And then they ran off the stage and didn't unplug their apps and pulled everything down and went out to the van, smoked a bunch of pot. Everybody's still cheering. They came back in. So they, I mean, they played some more. Um, and I just, they were amazing. Uh, such an incredible energy. Um, they played with the enzymes at, uh, at, at his organ. So that was a big deal for me. Uh, they never really get the credit because they're, they're, they're the one that taught Black Flag from what you hear. Huge. I mean, it's really, you know, it's also amazing they've continued, but then mm-hmm. they've done some really stinker records. I mean, don't tell them that. I said that, but, yeah. Yeah, but what are you going to do? I don't know. Marijuana motherfucker would not have cut it on Hardcore 81. I'm still thinking, like, let's wreck the party. I was like, that's, I can see there's not even a chain on the chainsaw on the let's wreck the party thing. Um, <laughs> it's such a setup. But, but they, they're, you know, they are, on, in other ways, some of the heaviest guys. And mm-hmm. also, like, subhumans. I mean, they were really. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, as far as being um, the real deal, po- politically, philosophically. Um, well, he would go. To, he went to jail for right. his beliefs. Like yes. he ultimately. All right. I mean, I was like, whoa! You're not just talking about it. You're yeah. not like wearing a shirt. You're actually breaking into a factory and trying to destroy uh, weapons of war. Yeah, blowing up munitions factories. Yes, yeah, right. Stay uh, minutes. So, yeah, and that was really those are examples. You know, not not. I, it made me actually really thin. Think about are we are playing a game here? Who's you know who's serious and who's not? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of so those are bands that I thought were pretty impressive, um, mm-hmm. but there were so many. I mean, I really can't even begin to you know list. But I've always been fascinated by the sort of like connection between uh, like what's happening in Texas and what's mm-hmm. happening in DC, and there's almost like the Texas big boys specifically yeah. influence. When that kind of begins to kind of enter what's happening in this city, mm-hmm. things take a change. Was were you a fan of them at all, or is oh, that massive? Of course, yeah. yeah. No, like, yeah. Um, 
That's touching my chest. That's good friends. Um, but yeah, they. Uh, I was worried you were doing your neighbor impression or something. Oh no no, <laughs> Red Fox. Um, no, that's a really old joke. Um, they, uh, you know, I think that really comes out of minor. Th- let's see. Here's my theory. Mm-hmm. Black Flag, you know, sort of they invented the Internet of Punk or something. Like they toured um, in a way that was. So they made all these connections with people. They stayed in people's houses, and and there was this suddenly a currency. There's a, a current that can go around the country, and then Minor Threat did a tour, probably the, the year after. Let's say, I can't say exactly, but they did a tour, um, and they ended up in in Texas. And by then, Discord had really um, spread far enough, so they were you know. They were known when they got there. They had they had a real uh, a fan base, um, but they made connections all the all along the way and kept them. And then the year after that, I remember going with my brother. Basically, he spent like a on a tour visiting. Like we just got in that huh. same yeah the same car, the nineteen seventy Duster's green. Um, we drove from here to Austin, basically without stopping. Um, we went to Austin and hung out with the big boys. Um, Saw Scratch Ads its first show. Um, saw the uh, Butthole Surfers when they were called the Jack Officers. Like all this, we just hung out for like a week. With, Pretty awesome trip. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, went from there. And then and Biscuit helped us. Um, the the radiator failed, so we had to go to a junkyard and buy. A, and so Biscuit is like you know three hundred pound transvestite. It takes us to a junkyard and we're like haggling with these guys about how much to pay for. It. And he's like, "Oh, yeah, it's gonna be easy to put this in." So we're we change the, the radiator and fix the car, drive to LA, meet um, uh, all of you, stay at SST in the in Hermosa Beach, and uh, Ian's like jamming with all the guys in Black Flag, and um, we hang out there, and then we go up to uh, San Francisco and, and stay with Tim Yohannan, who helped him uh, do Maximum Rock and Roll, take everything to, you know, we went to Reno, stayed with the Rex, Bessie from the Rex. Yeah. And basically, just went on a visiting tour and and that actually is something I still do mm-hmm. like when I'm I do I, cur- I do these courier trips for my job and if I'm in a town I will call somebody I'm like hey what do you come I'm in your town let's get have coffee or whatever and um, and still do that kind of f- thing it's just um, so I'm not sure what the core of that is but that's really you know there's that's with the uh, Austin really there was a huge uh, early connection yeah and it's like if you if you're thinking of like, uh, you know, two scenes that seem very div- divisive on the surface. It's like it's like the what's happening at least the perception of this sort of like teetotaler DC scene versus the sort of like wild party Austin thing. But there's almost this like DIY yeah like ethos. That's I happening. think that there should be uh, you should consider what the impetus is, why people do the things they do, like mm-hmm. whether it's whatever you're into. Um, but there's a respect beyond like, just people pick their path and then you um, you appreciate them for what they're doing um, so I don't even that wasn't really even taken into account certainly not that long ago I mean we just did what we did because it was right for us um, and uh, you know I never even really considered what other people were up to personally I mean I, you know, I just picked my thing but um 
But also, you know, they came up here and played amazing shows. They played at, uh, uh, Big Boys played at Psychedelic, and Biscuit had uh, made a bunch of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and put them in his armpits. And uh, we walked out in the crowds, like, handing out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches from his armpits. <laughs> and those are things that really inspired me, you know? Yeah. So, and friend for life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I could, as I say, like, there's every guest tonight I could punish for the whole night. and But I got to let you go and live your life as much as I want you to just stay in the car with us and tell us stories for the rest of the trip. But I want to kind of find out where did the melody influence kind of come in when you, when faith kind of forms? Cause I think that's like the, the melodic side of faith. I'm finding that out now actually, because you know, there's uh, these sort of, there's a re-examination of faith and we didn't really talk about much and we just did what we did. <laughs> And then we stopped talking to each other. <laughs> More about that, anyway. Um, so, we, I guess Michael Hampton really just brought in some stuff. And then, because we had um, Eddie Janney playing guitar, he was able to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't say exactly. Um, it just kind of developed. And it's um, and I'll f- we'll find out. Because I guess, they, I think John's doing some zine or something. So he's he's got it now. He's working on it. Yeah, he's he's getting to the bottom of those things. <laughs> but wait, I'm supposed to tell you the story of I bought the first Misfits single for a dollar. Oh yeah, I, I, I definitely we can talk. You're a record collector, right? Or I'm what Henry calls a uh, Rollins calls a, a casual collector. Uh, okay. I have a, apparently a good record collection by accident. I imagine it's a fantastic record collection. Uh, well, let's hear how one of these fantastic pieces wound up seconds. in there. But basically, going up to New York, to, I think we were going to a show, but we really were also record shopping, and went into 99 Records on Bleecker Street, and I saw they just had this Misfits thing. I thought it was a, a fake um, Misfits thing because... It looked so new wavy and strange, called Cough Cool. And I was like, oh, you know, what's this thing about? And the guy said, oh, that, oh, that's a dollar. And then everybody, the, everybody moved with me, like, oh, do you have any more of those? And the guy had like two more. So everybody bought, <laughs> but, um, but really, we weren't even sure if it was real. I and mean, then when I played, I was like, this can't be the same band. I had no idea. I'd only heard the uh, Teenagers from Mars, but it was so radically different. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's all it was. But anyway, it's a pretty, it's a great record. So it's, it's worth a, a dollar. Definitely worth a dollar. <laughs> do, you, do you want to double your money? Um, I didn't bring it tonight. Dante had one too. I think you, you cut. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Dante actually cut out when he got a uh, jukebox for his first record. You guys would kill. Yeah, he got a one-inch drill bit. And drilled out all his like collectible records so he could stock his his uh, jukebox with real. You were your own mom singles. throwing out all your baseball cards. I did all my. I a bunch of Iron Cross singles so I could cut them out. And put them on the jukebox. It was, it was, <laughs> no, it was, it was it's a good jukebox. Yeah. It sounds like the the most valuable jukebox I could ever come across. <laughs> the best one to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I actually have a couple more questions for you. Okay. What did you feel like the first time you saw the cover of "And Come the Wolves"? The Rancid record. Would you think you like? I recognize it. You recognize it. Like, <laughs> it's fine. I don't know. I mean, something to do. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I guess the final one is because my my first exposure to DC hardcore in any real way was Sonic Youth covering Nick Fit, and mm-hmm. that was where 
I was exposed to it. And I guess like, how does it feel Wait, like that's your first exposure to? DC Hardcore. Really? Yeah, like that record that came... That is like 900 years after the beginning of DC Hardcore. I'm 900 years younger than DC Hardcore. <laughs> no, that record came out when I was 12, and I bought it. And like, you know, at the time, you know, we're, we're post-Nirvana. Um, so, you know, punk is back in kind of like the, the mainstream kind of thing. But, but that record was like, I heard it, and I like, you know, I love Sonic Youth, but that song was different. Than all the other songs in that record. To this day, I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> it's so. <laughs> yeah. Steve Shelley called me and he's like, you know, we're trying to put together this album. Uh, would you mind if we threw on this? We have a recording of us doing, a, you know, Untouchable song. I was like, if you want to do it, go for it. I mean, I can't. Whatever. There was no. I gave him permission. Then he called back and he's like, can we give you a little bit of money? And I was like, I, as long as I don't have to sign anything, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and then, he, got, then uh, he said, how about if we give you a Nickel record? And then like an hour later, the lawyer calls him, uh, we need to renegotiate. Uh, <laughs> a and Nickel I was, record. I was like, first off, who, who am I talking to? Like, hey, like you have a lawyer now? Like, what's going So it, it changed radically. Um, but because I had no idea what they because I didn't know what they, they even signed. So I didn't know what they were up to. I mean, it was... Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was pretty interesting because it really was this other... Uh, Taking that really early thing and putting it um, in this another, uh, I don't know what you call that. I mean, it it another place. light, yeah. Like, like I, I don't. Know, also, for me, was like you know, I look back on that and like the, it's almost like that's showing that there is this lineage that there would be no Nirvana, Sonic Youth without the work and the the groundwork that was laid by all these people before. Like that's. Yeah. Well, they were really, I mean, I, I, at times, I, you know, I used to see them, they'd come play at the 9.30 club when I was working there, and I was never even sure if they, I thought they were sometimes making fun of me, like, they always wanted me to come down and hang out, you know, and, and I thought, like, oh, they, they're, like, how can they like this kind of music for real? They're super smart, arty people, and I just wasn't sure, um, but they really, you know, I think came from that, I think they understand the energy, I mean, this is what I was talking about before, was the, the impetus, like, the energy, the impetus, the, the drive. Um, so that was real for them, and uh, so it wasn't a joke. And then, so they did, you know, picked that song. It was kind of random, mm-hmm. um, but they really, in their in their work, they've always been very. Um, um, they brought all the pieces along with them. I mean, that's one thing that I think is really, and that is art. Actually, that's that's what a visual artist is. And they're really successful. They can bring in, even though it's a simple thing that they're doing, um, everything that they've uh, consumed is, is uh, embedded in there, and you can, you can have it all. And I think they did a really good job with that in general. And even as they got, when, you know, the year that Pump broke, all that stuff was going on, they were very, um, you know, they're bringing people along if you want to come. I mean, like, mm-hmm. this is going crazy. We can help you or not, like, but mostly we just respect you. Just respect you like that. I have to say that slowly so you don't get me wrong. But, um, but they, so they, that's, um, it seemed like that was the case. And, and they continued in that way. I mean, you know, it's, but I, I yeah, why they picked that, I have no idea. <laughs> well, Alec, will you do a part two at some point? Sure. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming fun. up here and doing yeah. it. Alec!
Alec, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Well, as I was telling you off air, well, as I was saying off air, I've stared at your number many times in my phone and tried to work up the courage to to bother you to come back on the show, and now it's finally happened. So I can finally don't you rest assured I will not text you to bother you anymore. I promise. Okay, I wasn't worried about it. You're always welcome to text me or call me even. Well, that's good. Maybe maybe this will be the start of something. But before we get there, uh, I want to dive back in with you. I'm going to put the the live episode before this episode to kind of get how you actually first heard of punk out of the way but ever since we had that conversation and then the day after we had that conversation i went to the discord house and and talked to your brother for a really long time not on the episode or anything but just about dc history and punk history stuff and Mm -hmm. i've kind of been obsessed with your older sister and how she got into punk and was she in any of the dc bands when she got back to town not at all um no i think she really just liked uh the music and the energy around it mm-hmm. um but she wasn't really uh she had a completely different uh, trajectory i mean she was uh traveling and working on her own and just sort of a um i was sort of an explorer at the time but then she moved away i mean she she moved away from home when she was 16. She graduated early from high school and went to college. Uh, and uh, that was, you know, here in the States. But then um, I don't know how many years later uh, she ended up going overseas. And, and um, that's where those records came from that, she, that Ian probably told you about or I probably told you about. Mm-hmm. But she was in England. Um, and then she was here. I don't think she even really was came to live at that point. Uh, she was here for briefly and then moved again. And she, you know, in the in the intervening time, was living in. She was a bicycle messenger in San Francisco for a long time, and uh, and then she moved to uh, to Massachusetts to I think Alston, Mass, and um, uh, and she was in New York and Brooklyn for a real long time, and then she came back down here. She's been here for a real long time now, but but she didn't get into bands or anything like that. But she's always gone to shows. Well, it's so interesting because, like, obviously the the other three of you are so deeply involved in se- separate aspects of punk rock in general and stuff. So it's it's fascinating that she's the gateway, but ultimately not the one who kind of sticks around to kind of have this long career in it, like the rest of you. <laughs> right. Well, I guess that's yeah. It is fascinating, and I don't know what you know what happened there, other than it just seemed to really stick for us and, and maybe it's what well, part of it is that she probably didn't have a, a turntable and she didn't listen to music the same way we did you know she really was kind of traveling light for a while there so well we're very lucky and i speak for everyone involved in punk and hardcore that she brought those singles back for you guys to hear because it would be a very different music landscape today Indeed. without that you- you can thank polystyrene of x-ray specs because i think that was the, th- the song that caught uh Katie's ear first was uh, oh bondage up yours and I she brought that guillotine seven in, or ten inch mm-hmm. that had that on there uh was one of the first things I really remember and uh and I you know I think it was the spirit of that that, that caught her and fed us and and here it is it's something amazing and it's like the, the power of the compilation and obviously now it's it's moot in the era of the, sort of the playlist I guess but all like, the world's a compilation yeah yeah exactly but like at the time just when when records were expensive and hard to come by like things like that guillotine 
10 inch compilation that got all over the world like we we i find it here in canada it's one of the first punk records i bought used mm-hmm. yeah and for sure we would buy them uh either right like mixtapes or whatever but it's a, a, an actual sampler to find uh you know i'd see like if there's a percentage of things i could trust and then i'd be willing to risk for the rest mm-hmm. uh, it was a you know smart move but um and yeah there was some great samplers yeah well, in the, you know, obviously the Untouchables having like being a, a compilation band that we, uh, a legendary compilation, right? We wouldn't, nobody would hear, have heard anything from the Untouchables if it wasn't for that compilation <laughs> because we made that tape but had no no real uh, plan for it and there was no way we were going to make a record out of it or anything. So we were super lucky to get that on the, uh, and then everything else on the records is so amazing. Was it ever put out like as like a, you know, it's, it sounds weird to say commercially available, but like as like a released demo tape, or was it just sort of a tape that you guys had for yourselves? I can't remember what we had in mind. I, I think we just thought we needed to make a tape. You know, mm-hmm. we just had to get in the studio, um, or maybe uh, you know, it was Nathan Straycheck from the Teen Idols who, who went with us to the studio and produced it. I guess. Um, so maybe it was his idea. He might have thought it was, you know, let's do this. And uh, uh, but I don't think we really had any intent. I mean, we certainly didn't have any money to make a record. No, so I hadn't really. So I don't know what we thought we were going to do with it, other than maybe uh, just use it as a demo and send it around. But I, re- I just don't recall. But no, it never got released. It's really the only uh, way it's available is is uh, on that. It's on the the sampler on, mm-hmm. on Flex Your Head. But then of course you know Sonic Youth covered. Uh, Nick Fit, uh, you know, hearing having heard it on there, and that turned into a whole other universe of. <laughs> so it's interesting. Well, that as I, I told you this last time, that was my gateway to DC hardcore was hearing Sonic Youth cover that because it was like, well, it was like such a huge record at that time, Dirty, and mm-hmm. that song uh, stands out <laughs> when you listen to that record. You know, like it's it's not the normal Sonic Youth song, and even when they did the crime cover on Sister, uh-huh. that kind of fits in with their sound a little bit more than the Nick Fit did. But it it was like, you know, it's something that sort of turned my turned me on my head. You know, I fl- it flexed my head. Next, yeah, well, that's cool. Was that recorded at Hit and Run Studios? Uh, yeah, was, yeah, Steve Carr's studio, uh, Hit and Run. Um, I forgot exactly where he lived at the time. Um, but the Carr brothers were, uh, they were also all in bands. Tommy Carr ended up being in um, uh, Black Market Baby and a bunch of, I mean, tons of bands. Um, and then Steve, I think he played in um, with Texer Benowitz and the Bad Boys. And they had another brother, another Carr brother, whose name I'm blanking on right now. But um, but yeah, he had a studio in his, his basement. I think my brother went there not too long ago to... Uh, to check it out and then just to see all his old what kind of demos he has around and it's i mean it's he hasn't been doing anything i think it's still just his mother's basement <laughs> did, did they wind up putting out like records did they do like the law and order of the bullock seven inch or something oh wow you know i won't know that i don't know okay. i should have yeah. researched that a little bit better myself but i think i swear that i've seen it on the back of a single like one of the more obscure kind of DC. I, I don't doubt it yeah i mean a lot of people went there i just don't know mm-hmm. what who did i will say that i didn't do any research for this interview so <laughs> that's you're, gonna, good. you're gonna stump me on everything but you can keep on <laughs> that's that, that's yeah. 
that's the whole point behind this podcast is, yeah. is me to kind of like try and put together a puzzle that I'm always <laughs> trying to put together. So nice. uh, and la- since last time we talked, I've talked to a lot more people that kind of came up in our conversation, be it like Joey shithead. And, mm. you know, it's an interesting kind of getting other people's perspective on these events. And this comes up time and time again, kind of on the podcast, but you know, and I'm, I'm very guilty of this, but people fetishize, like such a small segment of specifically your life, you know, and, and DC and like your friends' lives and, and stuff and, and fixate on it to the point where people live by the code that you guys kind of put out there back then where it, it almost feels like it's fills the de facto religion void in people's lives in some ways. So, you know, it's, it's amazing to kind of, uh, you know, be able to kind of like see behind the myths and kind of get the, yeah. the actual perspective of what happened. It's pretty simple. Yeah, everybody's got a story. So what were some of the first DC, like, punk bands that you saw? Did you get a chance to take it any of that wave of of sort of like the Limp Records stuff? Yeah. Um, uh, Penetrators I saw a bunch of times. Um, I loved. I mean, they were, all, they were a great show live. And then that one cut that's on, on the, uh, on the um, 30 over DC is like that's their their best song um and uh i saw half japanese a lot of times i saw oh, that's chumps awesome. i saw and uh not I, don't think, I think i saw nojo I definitely saw the chumps um i don't remember who else is i mean yes i saw all the early stuff yeah what was half japanese like and was there a lot of kind of phenomenal kid- yeah just oh, amazing man. uh uh, they were uh, baffling, you know, like they were really uh, uh, crazy mm. and people didn't really know what to make. I mean, except for that, it was it was just unfettered. Um, it was like fun and hilarious and uh, just off the hook kind of. Um, uh, and so they're just a great band. It's really and also just super creative uh, artists and and. Um, and just making a mockery of, of rock and roll um, just in the best way. Um, and so, but in a, in a really earnest way and another, you know what I mean? Like really not, it's hard to describe really, but like when, uh, you know, when, when Jad Fair would be singing a, a song about love, it was moving, you know, it was really plaintive moving, uh, you know, from the heart kind of thing. However, it also seemed to be like taking it, uh, you know, sort of uh, making fun of the the, the vehicle in this, at the same time, and then his brother David, who doesn't, who didn't play with them. I mean, early on he did play it all the time, but then later on not so much. Uh, he was also. I mean, I just remember seeing a show. Uh, Might have been when they played with. Well, this would be a bit later. They opened for the Dead Kennedys. Jello Biafra like insisted that have Japanese be the opening band when they played at nine thirty club, and I think it was at that show that. Um, they come on stage and Jad has this guitar and he's like, you know, kind of doing you know, posturing with it, like posing like a, a real rocker and he's playing and singing and they're just, and just really just ripping it. And then I noticed that the strings are actually just like uh, cloth, like, you know, like <laughs> little strings for tying a package, you know? Yeah. It wasn't, uh, it was just like, you know, like clothesline, not, not even clothesline, but <laughs> And he, then he thanked his brother for making this awesome guitar, which actually didn't make any sound at all. Like it was just, and then, uh, and then David Fair was just, he had his guitar and he immediately just broke all the strings. Like the first song he was playing it so hard, all the strings broke. So he just laid it on the floor and, and stood on it and danced 
for the rest of the set while it's fed back you know like um you know they just just really really great band really inspiring uh, great horn section just loved all uh, just phenomenal so they were great um texture for the music scene you know what i mean they they brought a totally different element so yeah super cool were there a lot of kids kind of crossing over and checking out that side of things or were you kind of one of the few kids that would be going to see a half japanese show from the hardcore scene well i would say that there is since they predate hardcore mm-hmm. uh uh i don't know how many hardcore kids would go to see them but you know they i think if we if some of the older heads like that kind of thing, then some of the younger ones will go see it too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the same today, but not all of them. I mean, a lot of, I'm sure that a lot of people walked in and turned on their heel and walked right back out. Uh, but that's fine. Uh, but I really don't know. Um, I mean, I, I just liked them because I liked music before hardcore, you know, like it was, and um, hardcore was just sort of a, a refinement of a existing situation for me i mean it was uh, uh so i but i don't know if they were really had a i, I think you know like because they seem to be uh just in the mix for, you know for decades so i do think that they had a, a following that was like a weirdly hardcore audience who they but they were like the opposite of of that <laughs> yeah no I, well there it's you know like you're saying it's, it's true punk what they're doing there's they're subverting yeah. the form of rock and roll absolutely in a way that comes from a place of love for it you know where they're like you're saying like this is like they're not making fun of it from a place where they hate it this is coming from an earnest place where they, they've studied it and they've got deep connections to toronto dallas good who recently passed away from the sadies played in half japanese for oh. years and and uh yeah so it's to me they've they're you know punk is the best when you can kind of include you know the untouchables and and half yes. japanese yes yes yeah i mean it's it would be a mistake not to you know mm-hmm. i mean if you're gonna if you're interested in, in getting there and and no they were just a tremendous band i i also because i find in dc unlike you know Det- detroit or something where it, it seems to me at least how it's been presented to me through talking to people like it is fairly compartmentalized for how rich this city is for music and all types of music obviously but like it doesn't seem like they really bleed over as much as they do in other places who's who uh in detroit or in dc in dc oh yeah yeah i that's probably true um it's funny i was talking about this with somebody the other day about all the bands i didn't see when i got like sort of uh self-consciously punk rock or or pretty hardcore or something and I sort of had a, a what I call discerning taste, uh, but it was also some people felt was narrow minded. Um, but it was so, sort of like I didn't want to like everything, you know. I'm not that easygoing. I want to be uh, selective because there's too much of everything in the world, um, and I wanted to be able to focus. And, and so there was plenty of things that I didn't um, res- like. I didn't even check it out. I didn't respond to things early on that later on the coin would drop and I would just, and my mind would be blown. What I mean, you know, like it's hard, just things that caught up later. And I would just think to myself, how, how could I have not, uh, you know, check that out early on. And, and um, anyway, you know, it's just, but I guess we all have that. We just, mm-hmm. it's, and it's exciting. You know, you want to be discovering things for your entire life. 
but um, but for sure, I was, you know, I had an idea, you know, not like when I first got into music, I would go see pretty much anything um, that had energy, you know, and, and I preferred something that was, uh, I mean, a lot of energy um, or just super cool. There was a guy named, uh, it's a rockabilly guy named Texer Benowitz that I loved that um, just super interesting, um, but very just conventional, traditional uh stripped down rockabilly nothing nothing punk about him really uh i think i uh loved his i mean i thought he was super cool and and uh great to see and then when the cramps name checked him the cramps came through town and in this interview they said that tex rabinowitz was the real deal like that um i think lux rabinowitz i mean sorry lux interior uh said that uh that uh that tex said there's uh, he, he gets down so low, there's nothing between him and the floor but a hiccup. <laughs> like, that's how, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, I, you know, that's my guy. That's so, a good turn of phrase. Yeah, well, that, Lux is always good for that. But yes. um, so there was, you know, these. It, I wasn't just straight punk rock all the time. Uh, but then, you know, maybe in the next couple of years, I, there was a lot more just straight up punk rock that I could consume. And, um, and I was a bit more focused on that um so i missed out on some things that other people were checking out early on uh and things that weren't you know high energy or something i i came to later but um yeah you know so all that to say that yes it it became segmented i would say there's a lot of different things but you're right you could be into your own thing and not into everything and not everybody uh whatever jumped jumped genres or something well, it also seems like, and this is something that's not just DC, this is, comes up everywhere, that the first wave of punk stuff was, you know, it wasn't very codified, and obviously there's a lot of different sort of sounds going on there. So when hardcore happens, there is this resistance from the older generation, and it almost feels like, you know, that goes both ways, obviously. There's, like, resistance from both, but that's you have to have that. There has to be that generational distance and that still exists in punk and it's amazing to kind of watch that unfold every generation afterwards where you have that rejection of the thing that came before you on both both sides do it yeah i mean i expect to be rejected uh constantly i hope by younger people um i mean if they're doing it right um but yeah i i uh um and also rejecting yeah like the older crew see that's what something i don't do so much of i i'm pretty happy with seeing new music and people pushing me aside to to make a noise um but i do remember that there was a kind of a you know that people would make fun of us because we, we you know we we're very young and it is remarkable you know i was 14 years old and playing in bars and doing things um and it must have looked strange to a, a guy in his late 20s who's been working at it for a long time uh, who's an excellent musician and see a bunch of kids who can't we you know with the untouchable we none of us could even drive we weren't even old enough to our our drummer was the only person in the band that uh, could drive and had a car um but we were ready to you know throw down and uh so but we didn't you know we we didn't worry about having um uh uh whatever you call this we didn't we, we weren't good musicians we'd just there was nothing, no reason to um, wait until any of that developed. We just needed to start doing it now, and um, I could see how older people would be bothered by that. But 
um, that did for sure happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> how, how much of an effect did that, um, teen idols, West coast kind of tour and going out to that have on, on, uh, everything? it was pretty big. Yeah, it was pretty big. Um, I think, uh, the running into the HB guy, the Huntington beach punk rock crew, um, I think was really, uh, astonishing for at least for ian and henry and i assume for all of them um and uh and i guess it got sort of doubled down later on when when that um that penelope spheris movie came out um decline yes right and you get to see all the people that they talked mm-hmm. about like these are people that ian and henry had met who yeah and they're like and i was like holy shit you know because back then you didn't you know there wasn't really televised or or like uh, i wouldn't get a moving picture image of a person uh very much you'd see pictures in a magazine and usually if it's in um like maximum rock and roll or flip side or something it's a tiny black and white picture mm-hmm. and you can sort of imagine what's happening but um but then to see like and the, not just the bands but the uh people that you know in the crowd um talking and doing things and so yeah that i think when they came back from that that particular incident and then they also met you know or just their um, interaction with, with the music scene uh, in LA and in San Francisco, all of that was just super fascinating for, for us. You know, we were fans of the music, but over here and then hearing that them talk about it and, you know, having had that first person experience, I think was, uh, it was massive for them. And I think then sort of washed back into us. Um, and for, you know, then the, I mean, the, the West coast, influence was much stronger than than england you know like in a, in a way which is i thought interesting because at first there was just nothing but british punk coming through there's a lot of that's what's coming into the record stores because they had you know, that was the distribution um and also because british punk was you know early mm-hmm. and widely uh known but um but then almost right after that that teen idols trip then we began to get all this uh west coast stuff and and that was a huge impact on DC music, I think. It's kind of fascinating because, you know, this winds up being the archetype for like hardcore kids, uh, generations to come all over the world. Like this sort of like the iconography, you know, obviously the X is, is like things people go to right away. But like even dressing a certain way, the vans, shoes mm-hmm. and like things like that. Like there was just so much that winds up being sort of... Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's such a studied scene, you know, by people, but I said, not just by yeah. people in North America, but like people all over the world. Well, I suppose so. But I mean, we, we were doing our own studying. I mean, for sure. It was like, I was uh, super excited to get some Dr. Martin boots when I was that age, which were ungettable um, because I'd seen so many pictures of people wearing Dr. Martins and I, and they were, you know, they wore them in England because they're a comfortable work boot you know it's mm-hmm. not wasn't really a uh, but that's not exactly why i wanted them i just wanted them because i'd seen them in the pictures and i think the same thing with vans we were wearing vans because for one thing i mean when i started wearing vans they were just they're van dorans like uh they're just cheap you know they're and we were skating and wearing out our shoes and that was a good cheap shoe uh and didn't really think about it you know uh, uh being this uh, a fashion thing or but yeah, you you do sort of pick up on those things and and 
and you want one. You want to get whatever that is. And uh, a lot of it sticks, but uh, it's funny when it gets really passed around. And it is also more and more, we've become such a visual world. Um, and we look at pictures and, and emulate things that people do and the way they dress. And, um, and now it's just instantaneous. You can watch somebody uh, you know, playing a gig somewhere in another place as it's happening and then begin to get your influence right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's weird. I remember being in, um, you know, this would be years later, I guess with ignition, we were in Belgium playing at a festival and before the night began with the bands, they played, um, what was this? Oh my God. Uh, suburbia, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and these kids sat down, it, they all came rushing in to watch it. This, I'm talking about like 800 kids from all over Belgium. They took trains. <laughs> to, I mean, it was a tiny town. I think we're in uh, Ulst or somewhere, but it's a small place. And there's yeah. hundreds and hundreds of kids. And they came cramming in there. And they all sat down on the floor when the lights went out. And they watched the movie like they were, it was like they were on a mission. You know, like they were studying. This is their assignment. And and I remember being just freaked out because I was all I could think was like, this is not real. Like this, this was not a movie about real people, you know, like this don't take this away. But, um, they, you know, I'm sure they did. And I also met kids at that show that knew more about my music, uh, uh, scene than I did, you know, like they were asking me questions. I, you know, and this is pre internet, pre anything. They were just super studious and it was, it was interesting. Well, it feels like um, Tim Kerr, when he was on the yeah. show, talked about being at the first skate rock meetup in L.A. or uh-huh. somewhere on on the West Coast. Yeah. And Steve Caballero kind of like, you know, being starstruck when you and your brother walked in and tackled him, you know, yeah. and just yeah. like. I remember that show. Yeah, we got on stage and we sang um, uh, red, green, red, green, red, green, <laughs> stop and go. I remember singing with the big boys at that. And that was a huge show. Yeah. Yeah. And but like the fact that Steve Caballero on the West Coast is already kind of like starstruck, like there was it seems like almost immediately a a fixation on the stuff that was coming out of D.C. by huh. by everywhere. Right. I guess so. If you say so. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I was just over here minding my own business. Well, it's <laughs> you know, like and, and like once again, I'm just because I've I'll talked to all these people and had yeah. it, it comes up. But like you've done the work. Well, no, but when it would be like, you know, those first shows going out and kind of like, it's almost like the stuff from the West Coast hardcore is brought back to the East Coast. And then it's almost spread by showing up in these towns and exposing the kids to it. Without a doubt. Yes. I mean, that that part I do really uh, remember, like noticing and remembering that from um, like Black Flag coming across and. Mm. And it's sort of like each place they go, you're sort of hearing this. I mean, you know, they're coming, you know, it's like having, it's this impending thing. It's not just uh, like you see the tour dates or whatever you're hearing rumors, you know, like it, this show was insane. That happened. This, you know, all these kind of uh, mythic kinds of buildup. And then they come to your town. And by the time they actually arrive, you're the, 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 people who come to the show are just so wound up uh, and so ready that it doesn't take much. Um, and I can see the same. And also I do remember like with, uh, 
with minor threat touring where that was um you know, the, the i'm sure ian talked about this but the year after the minor threat tour he and i did a, a trip where we just drove around and went back to all the places you know not all of them but you know just sort of core places to hang out and visit people and that's kind of amazing to do you know it was not easy you know we drove in a 1970 duster uh all over the United States, just dropping in to say, Hey, and, and, and hang out and, and talk about stuff. Um, that's a, that's hard work, you know, but it's also just, uh, it was a good thing to do. And, uh, and it was an everlasting experience. Even, you know, I wasn't on the minor threat tour, but during those, that trip, um, visiting all those people and just, and every experience was, was, uh, spectacular. Like I remember being at a, like at a barbecue at, um, at Systematic, which is like a small distributor that, that distributed SST records, and they were having a cookout in their parking lot of their, and I was just you know blown away by these people who just live over here in California and work and look at all the records they have, and like I mean just everything about it. Or, or uh, going to uh, Rough Trade, and was having a sale at Rough Trade Records, and I bought uh, an Afflicted album, Afflicted Man, yes. in the in the in a bag, and it was like a dollar. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe it. And a woman named um, Allison Schnockenberg, who was the at the counter, um, and she gave me such a great deal and was just and uh, super nice. And uh, like I, I'll never forget that. Yeah. You know, like um, and then she came, you know, ended up working for uh, John Loder. I mean, she she ended up in London, and we met her years later. And you know, she's just a great friend to have. And I don't see her or talk to her all the time, but. I'll never forget that first time I met her. Uh, we're going to uh, Reno and staying at Bessie from the Rex house. So, you know, these, all this stuff was just, um, and that's mostly just because of my age, I think it was, you know, really young and, and these are all first impressions, but it's also the, um, the, the, the trade, you know, like of the, um, we're coming and hearing what they have and they're, and they're hearing what we have musically and what we're into. And, uh, and really it was like a, you know, it's like a ancient uh, exchange. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, first of all, Afflicted Man, unbelievable. That record is, <laughs> yeah. is the, all the records sleeper. are godly. Yeah, yeah, that's my jam. <laughs> yeah, have you ever heard the Afflicted Seven Inch? I haven't. The same one, with the little bag. The first one, like that before they he went solo when he had like a full band. And I don't. I guess not. I don't know. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the bass players like. uh Nikki Crane, who was like yes. the screwdriver dude. I heard that. Yes. Yeah. Which that's pretty crazy. Yeah, he distanced himself, I think, very much from that thing later on. But yeah. And and Nikki Crane, of course, had infamously, I guess, was leading a very much double life yeah. at that point, too. Who knew? I mean, I guess some people knew, but that was wild. That was a wild, yeah. It, uh, that, that whole everything about that, that story is kind of amazing. Yeah. 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 It, it is uh I don't know. Well, I, th I think that's the other thing, like, you know, which kind of goes to what you're talking about this story. Like, this is such a, 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 f a fascinating time before there was documentation of everything. So things are just kind of like word of mouth. There are still secrets that you could only see by visiting places and, and experiencing right. things on first, right. firsthand. And basis. then even when people tell the story later on, it's a, it's a oral, it's a tale, you know, it's not, yeah. it's, it's, it's not a, bogged down with facts and realities and all these things it's a little bit more you know the important parts are embroidered and and heightened and then the boring or uh not so hot stuff 
they leave that out of the story and it just, you know, it just gets refined and, and delivered. And, um, and so it makes it that much more amazing. And you kind of don't, you, know, you don't always want to know the whole truth, you know? Yeah. And I think the way each person experiences something changes, right? Like there's something could be very minor to one person, but uh, a major incident in another person's life, you know? And, yeah. Um, one thing actually that John Brandon brought up, like a huge moment for him was at a, the negative approach show that minor threat played in Windsor. Mm, and I think oh, yeah. you, were, you were there. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. And someone crashed into you. I think it's the dude from minor threat, the drummer at the time. Uh-huh. And, and John said he got like, as soon as anyone touched Alec, it's like, you fucked up huge. And <laughs> yeah. He got wolf packed like crazy. <laughs> I think it was Zuhair, wasn't it? It was a yeah. Was, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that was a we, yeah, yeah. I guess that's what happened. I don't. I mean, I think we didn't know who he was. That was part one of the. It's not good to be that sort of uh, uh, to behave like that sometimes because you don't always know who, what's going on. But we were fighting these sort of lumberjack guys at the beginning. That's that's really where it began. But but then after that, it's just so free for all. So you don't know. Yeah, it will. It, it, well, then it starts changing everywhere you go, right? Like in a couple years later, and and Lou Barlow talks about this, like how eventually every band started sounding like they wanted to be from DC, and that was like where to him that's where Dinosaur Junior and what Deep Wound kind of ends and Dinosaur Junior begins because for them that was their Revolution Summer kind of moment where they were like, you know, we don't want to be like all these bands that are trying to sound like minor threat or trying to sound like you know government mm-hmm. issue or something else from dc so interesting really it's amazing to me i mean i'm not gonna lie when i first you know when bands from other places uh got big and um like i was working at the old 930 club in the mid 80s and red hot chili peppers and beastie boys and sonic youth all these people would come through and they'd want to, um, they'd ask uh, the manager of, of the club to send, you know, if I, if I could come down to the dressing room and I'm just working, I was bar backing, you know, and then, and they'd and talk to me. And I really thought that at first, that, I mean, I guess I just had a, a complex or something, but I thought they're making fun of me. <laughs> you know, I thought they were just being like, you know, check us out, you know, like, like Sonic Youth. I honestly, it's like, you guys are huge. Why, why do you want to talk to me? Like, what's the, and they're just being super friendly, but I honestly was like, "Are you are you trying to make fun of me in some way? Like you, like I'm not successful, or I don't know." I said no, but they're just into the music, and um, mm. and I couldn't couldn't get it at first, and and uh, but I, I I do understand it now. I mean, I you know completely, but um, but yeah, all those it was. Yeah, I remember um, Red Hot Chili Peppers coming through, and and Anthony saying, oh, you I like my guy. Oh, my girlfriend's got a biggest crush on you. And I was like, what? Okay, that's not appropriate, first off. And, like, and I really well, couldn't believe what he was you know, like, are you, you got to be bullshitting me. You know, you know that though, right? That you've got a reputation of being like one of the heartthrobs. Like that's also something that comes up on this podcast, not to be inappropriate, but. <laughs> Too late. But people definitely bring that up on this show quite a bit. I didn't know. My God, no. I guess I got to start listening to your show now. I tell you, there's gold in those hills. <laughs> I'll check it out. <laughs> um, it's it, it is uh, though amazing when you look at a band 
well like like all these bands came out of punk rock right like flea was playing in fear at, at one yeah. point and and obviously like, oh yeah absolutely no i remember yeah red out chili beverage i remember reading about them and and Flipside, uh you know the scene report and and all and beastie boys i knew them early you know when they they came down to dc mm-hmm. to see music and and we were friendly with them um yeah no i know i mean for no i knew that part i just it's just that funny you know i guess it's you know the year the punk broke or whatever that is that the lead up to that where they're just not sure um what what's happening where people are going and um but yeah it was, it's very interesting and 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 you're i guess dc did have a a big impact mm-hmm. well and, all, and also you right like you were in and still are in unbelievable bands and it's not like one band or two bands it's like bands you know right. and they're and like you also you know and once again not not to make it weird but you know you're one of the best front people ever and and that's i think true. that's something yeah. that well no but like that's something that you know that's a fact you know and i think that those are the things that you know especially at a time before the video like now on youtube we can all go and watch it but when it was just word of mouth and you kind of heard people talking about this band or you know then you realize there's a connection between faith and the untouchables and then you realize like you know the warmers and and like it's just like there's ignition obviously as well like there's just like a lot of there's a breadth to what you've kind of put out there in this world and all of it's had impacts on people differently or maybe the same people in different ways too but you know like it's just something that you got a resume wow yeah i i okay i'm glad (laughs) (laughs) what um what did you kind of think on that first or that ignition 87 tour kind of going out there and seeing like you know here we are a few years removed and by this point there's the the revelation stuff starting to pick up in in new york and there's stuff going on obviously in california where there's like hardcore has become kind of a thing did you feel like you were part of it with ignition or do you feel like an outsider kind of looking at this thing being a little bit older and removed that's, from it that's about i mean not a hundred percent outside but um but somewhat you know there was certainly uh, it was shocking to me how much there was i guess and then also uh, a lot that i couldn't like i just couldn't keep track of how many bands there were and didn't um didn't know who a lot of things a lot of people were um maybe we'd stay at somebody's house and they would say haven't you heard the new you know such and such you know they're, they're amazing and i'm like no i don't know anything about it don't, never even heard of them what like they would look at me so disappointed like you're supposed to be on top of this stuff <laughs> yeah. and uh so sometimes i'd you know pretend pretend to know what's going on but um but yeah there was just a lot it was, it was it grew pretty quickly pretty fast and uh and everybody sort of did try to create their own you know put their own spin on things and um so there's a lot of that that uh, uh you know and wasn't all my cup of tea you know mm-hmm. some uh saw some great bands and a lot of it i just wasn't interested in i'd rather see half japanese or whatever yeah. um but uh yeah it was it was strange and it did it did seem you know there, there were there were times i think it was you know, sort of later um just sort of maybe disappointment i guess or something uh where there was just stuff that was happening that um that just didn't seem uh good at all i mean not good for people not good not progressive not interesting not uh not safe and i don't mean safe like um 
I mean, I like, I like danger. I do. I really, I, and I like risk. I don't like people um, uh, uh, being horrible to each other. And there seemed to be like some, you know, some element of that uh, entering in certain places that, and with, with punk rock and hardcore being the, the, the vehicle that it's arriving. And that part was just not, not good, you know, couldn't, mm -hmm. couldn't relate to it. And that part's depressing a little bit. So it's it, but you, you can't, it's sort of like when the door is open everybody comes in and it, it's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. It, and it also seems like that's once again, part of that natural life cycle, sadly, that, this music has to go through like you look at what happened in california by the mid 80s it had kind of eaten itself alive with violence and stuff and you know once again in dc that's well it's very storied where that kind of begins to happen right 83 when faith breaks up they say okay yeah i didn't know there's a time stamp but yeah sure i, I think that's what can. that's what they say in the uh, dance of days book so that's become the gospel truth according to the uh, text the written word yes. exactly <laughs> yeah that, that's it's that is also part of, that's another thing that's so interesting or strange is when people do create um like i remember when when cynthia was putting together band in dc and was collecting all the pictures for it and i just thought like why you know who's going to even buy this book you know like it's just like it's just like a you know a scrapbook of like a, a yearbook for a bunch of teenagers you know like it, i mean it's cool but who's gonna you know it's, honestly in my mind i couldn't think of like that it would be uh, so interesting. But then, I mean, in that way, in the way that it is, you know, I mean, she knew, I just didn't know that I was in it. It's kind of like, you can't see the forest for the trees. She mm -hmm. knew how to, what, what the, uh, but, um, but what was funny was that it took almost no time at all before we, be, before I began to consult it, that book as a, I mean, particularly the, in the, uh in papers you know the um the, all the shows are listed uh in chronological order and i yeah. and it really helped me remember shit like who played with who when and including even bands i mean uh shows that i played at where i just couldn't and so i could read the list and then see the picture and and it became like a real uh a textbook and then that sort of happens with with anything that gets written i mean i it's um so it's I, either you hope more people are right or less people are right, but to get this all the different stories because uh, I don't know if you've ever written anything, but you it's it is very hard to um, once you have a when you're trying to make a book, it's like you have a bucket and mm -hmm. and the bucket uh, is this one size, you know, it has to be the size that you can sell or it's the size that your publisher is going to make, and you can only put whatever you, you know will fit inside that bucket. And then it has to be intelligible to strangers. So you have to get this thing going. And it, it, it the real world and this and history is way more mixed up and complex than that, as you probably know, just from doing your show where you've talked to all these different people and sort of triangulating on these different uh, things that interest you, you know, like these uh, uh, points in, in time that you get uh, like the Rashomon view of what happened and whatever is so the seven views of the, uh, some gig and uh and it's fascinating to get it that way but that takes time um and it's uh it's hard so when people write books it's really it's a challenge to try and get it all i don't know make everybody happy so yeah absolutely i've been wanting to you know i've been joking about trying to do a history of punk book but like where do you start you know and like and then it's like what gets left out 
you know, like you feel like you're doing a disservice to what gets left out. And I think, you know, and it's not your fault. Oh, go, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I'm not, it's not obviously not your guy's fault for doing this, but I think because the discord world is so well documented, uh, there are a lot of bands that end up falling oh, yeah. cracks, you yeah, know, I mean, like, like in DC or like everywhere. Yeah, I think in, in anywhere, like we're talking yeah. about, like I've seen, I've, I've got books of your growing up photos in my library, you know, like it's, it's very well documented, but like, like we're talking about some of these other bands that are just kind of not as well documented or just don't get brought up in the conversation because they just, you know, didn't have as much of an impact. It's true. Yeah. It's actually interesting. Um, um, it's partly because something, something that happened in DC that I, I guess didn't happen elsewhere, but it's quite the same way as we saved everything. Like we, people would make things and save things and we didn't take, I mean, like I didn't take a lot of pictures and other people I knew didn't take tons of pictures, but there was people taking some pictures and, um, for sure, obviously. Um, but there was this, uh, I don't know what it is, but a little bit more care taken with the, with the ephemera of, of what we were doing. And we were, and we were interested in the things we were making and we weren't just going to throw them in the trash when we're done with it. And not really, I mean, I certainly wasn't thinking about the future, but, um, there's enough to material so that we could, uh, you know, so it does, there's evidence, that's all. And, and other places, I think people don't, um, didn't save things. They just were always living in the moment. And, uh, and it's just truly, that actually was ephemeral. Like these are people who are making sounds and doing things and not leaving evidence and, or is enough evidence. Um, and that's harder to uh, keep them in, like a really, to me, a really influential band from, for me is a band called Trenchmouth who don't, from DC, who don't have a record out. Um, but but their singer was, was the guy that uh, you know was my biggest influence um, uh, as a performer. Not not knowing at the time that he was also he was basically ripping right off from uh, Iggy Pop. Um, but you know, so I'm like two steps away from that. You know, as, as my my model. Um, but they would be a band that would, would could be considered forgotten, even though they were they were cranking, they were playing hard and playing often and and really just ripping it up. I mean they uh oh no they didn't play with I was trying to remember if they played with DOA that for well DOA that DOA show that when the first time they toured and I saw them here uh was another you know was that chirotic moment you know like when you you something happens you know you know that word chirotic means like it's it's the time outside of time where mm. um when it, when nothing is the same after uh this moment occurs, you know, and that was one of those moments. Um, but so, you know, trench mouth is like around and, and playing in that sort of uh, that time frame for me, but don't get the same because they just didn't make records and they didn't, you know, they just were making, they're just doing it. They're living in that moment. But um, I, I guess it's unfair, but it's also just sort of the reality of it. And then there's other bands, you know, I get sometimes weirded out by bands that really didn't do anything but are uh, I mean I'm not you know gonna I don't have an example per se but mm. bands that I'm aware of who somehow have this like retrospective huge impact <laughs> that I was not aware of in the moment that it was happening and I was there but other people sort of dig them up and then they're like oh my god you know the whole everything is key you know it's 
partly because people like to find the obscurities and elevate them and decide that this was a, a pivotal situation. And they just say it. And because they say it and they write it down in a thing, then it becomes a fact. Mm-hmm. And and uh, we all, you know, but why not? <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's it's way uh it's it's sadly, I guess the, the drawback of the written word is it becomes sometimes too uh, important. And bands that I guess didn't have the the ephemera that can people can kind of like hold up and be like, here's the record, here's the right the the pictures, or here's the video footage of them are are kind of forgotten about and don't you know it it's really left to the people that were there to kind yeah, of bring yeah, the context yeah. to it. And they should do. We do. I mean, I, I mean, I do. Mm-hmm. I, I, I bring them along whenever, wherever I go. When people want to talk about things, I tell them all the things that, that uh, mean things to me and people that, I mean, as much as I can, it's, you know, but, um, but you're, and, you know, I just, it was funny. I read an article, I think it's in Slate uh, about Rod McEwen, who's like the, you know, uh, hugely, I, according to this article, the the biggest selling uh, poet, like of, of poetry books in history, was this guy Rod wow. McEwen. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, who was popular in the seventies, and and now nobody's heard of him. And he also was a you know played musician and you know bon vivant did all these kind of like you know did spoken word things and and all tons of output for you know, 15 years or something and it's all out there, but then, um, then he just completely disappeared. And part of what this person pointed out, which I thought was interesting is that he lit the reason this person knew about him is because he kept seeing him in, in thrift stores There's a, 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 maybe a punk rock person. I don't know, but the person who wrote the article likes to go to thrift stores a lot and kept seeing Rod McEwen stuff and thinking like, who, who is this person? You know, like, and then, and, and diving into it and it's just that he he just really promoted himself well and there's a right moment and he just kept putting out more and more material so he's just flooding the market but it's just stuff that was out there so it has this I, impression that he was um incredibly influential but really he was just incredibly productive you know <laughs> like yeah and yeah. left a lot of material lying around so we you know but now that that stuff doesn't matter because people don't really uh, make records the way they used to and all this and even pictures and things like that are just uh, you know they're in our uh, you know they're just a, a, a magnetic memory of a thing that's stored but it's not lying around for us to discover in quite the same way um, he, he you know he he wouldn't that wouldn't work you know no. you can't just put out a bunch of junk on the internet and ha- and become a sensation necessarily but, but the the stuff people hold on to um, it's interesting now where you don't need to own the record and you, you don't need to own necessarily the book, the stuff that people uh, gravitate to or, or, or cling to. It almost becomes like, you know, not to overdo the metaphor of religion, but it becomes like a religious relic at a certain point. And I think you really saw that with the Discord box set. Mm-hmm. The amount of people I know that were obsessed with trying to get it yeah, and, and just how important it was and how many people were posting pictures of it on their social media and it became yeah. it became like the uh i don't know very much almost like a religious importance yeah. to people when they were talking about it well it's it's yeah i get it and yeah. uh, and and relics are you know i mean like i remember being really excited going to this little place in maryland i'd never heard of this person but uh 
Mother Ann Seton, who was the first American saint, first American Catholic saint. And I guess when she died, they rolled her corpse around in a bunch of cloth and they cut the cloth in these little tiny bits and you sell them in these metals and uh, you get to, um, to own a piece of uh, material that was wrapped around Elizabeth Ann Seton. Um, and I was blown away by that and I didn't even know anything about it, but I can imagine for people who, uh, you know, speaking of religion, but the idea of it, um, so you get to have a, a thing that you can, it's real, you know, it's atomic. It's made of atoms. You can touch it. Um, you can lose it and you can find it and you can worry about it and uh, you can put it on a chain and you can give it to somebody and all these things you can do with it uh, because it's really real. Um, and that's a little different with a thing that you can talk about or it's just not. It's, I mean, I guess you can send a digital copy of a thing, but it's not. I don't know. I feel like it's different. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, uh, but yeah, so so records are still have a profound importance, maybe even more in a different in a weird way. They're harder to make now because there's fewer pressing plants, um, but uh, they're still pretty important, I think. And um, uh, I think about yeah, what what it is to when uh, like I don't know when people would go to like Rolling Stones shows, they'd buy all the programs and everything that's you know the merch table has and back then i thought it was dumb like those you know like you guys are just what are you a t-shirt factory or are you a band you could play your show uh but now i, I guess i understand that people still they really want uh real things and and it is funny to see these bands that basically the, the merch truck has got just twice the size of the equipment truck but oh yeah no- now they open up the merch store. You don't even have to go to the show. You can just go to the merch store and buy the merch um, outside of the venue. There's like like those huge stadium shows. I don't mean like wow, honestly. wow. Um, it's become a, a thing, you know, to do clothing drops and to have, you know, a huge merch line. And yeah, I hear about it from people that like uh, my friend Bert Caros from the Untouchables. Actually, uh, he's he's in Berlin now, and I think that's what he's he's working for a company that does that. It just mm-hmm do merch for like enormous bands and uh and yeah just it makes sense to me i guess but it's it's strange but you're right about the religious relic side of things i think it's in in uh, canterbury tales uh mm-hmm. there's like the thing about the relic seller oh. um, who's going around in um and so like religious selling religious relics and the idea of like you know and I, I say this as someone who's surrounded by records like i'm i definitely yeah. love the idea that the record allows me to kind of like touch history almost oh, through yeah. it in the same way that people would touch divinity through their religious artifacts yeah yeah i do i guess we all do the same uh but in my own journey um you know like i i have stuff things, objects, uh, a lot of it is completely, you know, like chunks of metal or things that I find um, that uh, are just touch, touch point, you know, like, uh, so it's a way it delivers me, delivers me back to that time that I found that. Mm. Um, and I just need to have them around all the time. I like it. Um, but they, I would say they're relics of my own um, experience, you know, they, and they are totally imbued in meeting. Um, and then I have other things that, you know, are, are real relics from people that I, people that I admire and other people besides me and, uh, things that are, were awesome that I didn't get to see, uh, things like that, 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 
are huge, but I can, I would say that records, the thing is that with a record, it's also, it's, it's a thing, but it, it also uh, makes a sound, you know, it's mm-hmm. filled uh, with a sound that goes inside of your mind, you know, <laughs> yeah. and stays there. So it's, it's really a, a intimate act. Um, and they're, so they're better than a, uh, than a piece of cloth on a, on an amulet, you know? Well, it's, it's also, you know, like it's a, uh, it, it, it's, it can be damaged. You can scratch it if you're not careful. Like yeah. there's a ritual to putting on a record where you actually have to engage with the medium in a way that you don't with, with other ways you listen to music. So you have to kind of like actively. Yeah. You take, take care. Yeah. It's, it's got, it's almost like a, you know, like a, there's a little monstrance sort of a, like a, a way that you present the thing and you, like you invite the sound or whatever, like the way they do a tea ceremony where they invite the, the sound of the bell or whatever. And you're yeah. just, just putting the platter on and you're finding the line, you know, you don't want to get just right on that. Correct. Uh, thing yeah well especially now where we have a much more convenient option to listen to music so now when you listen to that record so in your smaller apartment than you would have had at one time you have limited space so the records you choose to have in there are few and far between right it's very important to you and then the way you put on that record instead of listening to it on a streaming service or on your computer or phone like you actually have to choose to take that off the shelf and it becomes very much like a tea ceremony and very much like a, a ritual. Like when you're putting that record on, you are celebrating that record in a way that is an active participation in it. Mm-hmm. This is all very grown up. Do you remember when you didn't, <laughs> didn't used to do that? Do you remember when you just had them lying on the floor and you'd fucking yes. rock that thing and you'd just, and you'd stack them up and, and uh, don't worry about it. That, yeah. that was also pretty nice. You know, I, well, I have a few old records that still we're pretty worn out. Well, last time you were on the show, you described yourself as a casual, or no, Henry Rollins described you as a casual record collector. Oh, right. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. Um, and you'd said you got a, a Misfit single. You told the story of finding the Misfit single for a dollar. Correct. Yeah. Nine, nine records. Yeah. What I did, which is an incredible label unto itself, which put out some of the most classic New York kind of punk adjacent, I guess, no wave adjacent, at least mm-hmm. records back then. Yeah. But did you, uh, were you into that stuff? Like the stuff that was coming out of nine, nine records? Not on purpose. Uh, I can't even really remember what they did. Uh, no, it's, I just went to a record store and we were just, we went to Beaver Bogs. We were just walking around the village going to record stores and that's, and that, and I'm pretty sure it's called nine, nine records. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and finding that, uh, single and then everybody like asking if they had more in the back, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I didn't, um, I didn't buy things I'm trying to think if there was like anything that I really pursued. I, back then, I think I just really didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and I would just look at a record and, and it took a lot of deciding whether or not I was going to get something or not. Um, and then I would, if it was an album, I would count how many tracks it had. That's the only reason I, yes. the first time I heard the germs was because they had a lot of songs, <laughs> yes. you know, I just wasn't sure. Uh, and then it turned out to be like the best record I ever ha- heard in my entire life, probably. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that sort of, that was my m- way of divining what, what to get was uh, really just anything. But I didn't, uh, I didn't follow labels. Uh, sometimes I looked for distributors, like, uh, gem 
distribution, JEM, for some reason, uh, I, I think I'd bought like three things that they distributed. They had a big sticker that they put on the outside wrapping. And I began to think like, okay, well, this, whatever this distribution company is, they tend to bring in a lot of good English things. And so uh, I'll take a chance on something. Did they do a Bad Brains record later on? J J E M no I don't think so I could have I don't know. maybe I'm, maybe I'm mixing it up with something else but I thought oh there was J V C uh oh maybe I'm thinking of J V C yeah and that was yeah. at um uh, Rock for Light I think it's on J V C mm-hmm. label which I mm-hmm. literally no idea what that is or who 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 that is probably pretty shady yeah <laughs> maybe I mean, label certainly the only uh, example of a J V C label record in my collection but yeah I, I don't know what else they've done. Uh, well, it's funny because, like, you talked about, you know, getting that Misfits single. And one thing I've heard uh, a lot since then is that DC didn't really fuck with the Misfits a lot. Were you a Misfits mm-hmm. fan? I I like their records. Uh, I mean, one thing that was, you know, I guess sort of the same, like we were talking about the mythologizing of things and and knowing just the right amount and the way that it's te- told and all this stuff. So I didn't know anything about the Misfits uh, uh, except what these sort of vague stories and they, and they were broken up by then, or as far as I mean, I think they were broken up. Um, They probably had like three, seven inches out when I uh, heard them for the first time. And, and I had heard that they were these, you know, weird, um, like I'd heard they were like super sickly, uh, like ex biker dudes who uh, were like scrawny and, and, like chud, you know, like what's weird, <laughs> creepy guys, and uh, and they sounded weird, and and everything about them. I mean, it sounded amazing to me. I love their records, but then seeing them live, they had a kind of a different, you know, t- take to it. To it, mm-hmm. you know, they're pretty um, took themselves pretty seriously, and they're uh, as you may have noticed, pretty buff, um, and uh, and and were really, you know, pretty. It seemed grouchy to me, you know. They were a little, you know, it was just different. So I wasn't uh, that I didn't really f- follow them after that, but um, but they make great records, yeah. Well, it seems so antithetical to what DC was about, where it's like fantasy, a fantastical take on punk rock versus a very reality based. Yeah, yeah. Rock. I think, at least for me at that time, also I did. I was sort of like later on i got more into people who who would be fantastical and dress up and and, t- and be really performative but i think at that time in my life i wanted the most stripped down mm. uh thing i didn't want people to um or if they're gonna be they're gonna look punk rock or something i wanted them to like be i don't know just the most plain and then so when when they, i I think they had like spandex pants on or something or i don't know some kind of thing that just seemed really uh, like a stage uh performance thing and then i'm thinking well next thing they're gonna have a smoke machine and a you know like whatever like a bubble machine and you know might be all <laughs> kinds of things and it's turned into a the- theatrical situation that i just it was just you know getting away from where i was at but uh it works for them you know trust me they they knew what they were doing. They did all right in the end. Yeah, did pretty good. <laughs> did pretty good from where I'm sitting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of fantastical takes on music, did you ever see Wicked Witch at all from DC? No. Have you ever heard that record? The no. Wicked Witch record? Uh-uh. It's almost like people have described it as being punk rock Prince kind of thing, wow. but it's 
it's it's hard rock kind of kind of metally vaguely punk in the f- sense that it's like completely out there but then also has like kind of a, a funk edge to it too and he's like covered in spikes and leather on the cover of the record i don't even know it that sounds interesting i want to hear it what era what's the i think it's 83 82 the single came out it got reissued in the early 2000s uh as wow. a 12 inch but um yeah i'll send it to you i'll i will now have a reason to text you i will text you the wicked rich stuff so all right <laughs> fantastic yeah i'd love to hear that uh what about like um like pussy galore when they were uh-huh. there did you ever see them because i know they yeah. like obviously do the diss uh yeah. on the back of the seven inch, yeah but... yeah um yeah i saw them i mean these are you know i'm very friendly with those people now yeah um uh very different but, time now obviously. yeah i guess so but it's also seemed like I think it was baffling for me anyway. There was a few, you know, like there was a, um, within a couple, well, whatever, five years of there being a sort of a, when straight edge became like a, a term that people used, uh, it got, you know, bandied about however it did originally. Then, then somebody came up with the idea of vintage, you know, like a, just a reactionary thing. Yeah. And that just seemed like, um, not i don't know it just seemed weak to me like it was like a, a can't you come up with a better idea <laughs> you know like <laughs> i mean except for you know you get it you know it's it's anti it's cool but it seemed also not to, to bring much more than that with it um and but there's these uh, you know it does make sense to be responsive or reactionary to things that i guess that really piss you off or disappoint you or whatever um so yeah so i there was a, a kind of a thing like that there was a um and you were i guess talking about where discord i think began to at least people who were on discord or or that sort of um discord adjacent or something um began to t- i think to take up a lot of uh of the air you know um and so people other people were just trying to make music that didn't sound like that or look like that weren't getting um enough attention and i think that's was irritating for them so that uh in response you say you know fuck you to the thing that is making it hard for you to you know um to, to do something I, I guess you know it makes sense to me but at the time it didn't you know i just was like what's what's your problem but um well, you know i get it well and also it, it it's not like you're trying to do this thing like it's like you guys can't help it the fact that the records you're putting out people are latching right. onto like obviously the distribution and the professionalism was on another level compared to a lot of punk places um but the fact that the label never fucked anyone over is also different than a lot yeah of punk i was places. gonna say when you said professionalism i think that um what you what what you are looking at is is hard work that's not i mean it's it's actually really kind of different and the same thing, the next thing you say was it never fucked anybody over. That's also something that's within people's power to do um, is to not fuck other people over, uh, to try hard, work hard and uh, and and be really into like every aspect of your craft. Like when you're making a record, you want to like make your record label do. I mean, I, it's not unusual, but I do think that that's something that that's what what with discord is not very professional it still isn't it's still a unprofessional situation um but it's people who care a lot about every little part of it and also really care about all the people that um 
that you know you, you know you just feel connected to all the people that to, that consume these records and uh listen to the music and uh and you you don't want to let them down you know like and and so you um but it's not everybody feels that way you know sometimes they are pretty um they just make a sound and just want to get it out there and it's, it's just different i'm not saying that's what everybody does but it's uh, but I do think that that's why uh, Discord, be, you know, got it was noticeable. Like their the finish and the quality of the records and everything. But there's there's no scene like that, right? Like there's no like no scene operated the way Discord operated. Like if you look at any other no. model, like there's no competitiveness in the way that I'm sure there might right. have been. And it like, but like it's pretty other, mild. No, yeah. you're right. And also, I would say that. Um, with consistency. I think there've been for sure times and there's, you know, uh, scenes that, that, well, not, I'm sure I know it. I mean, there, there have been moments where, or, you know, like, uh, small periods of time where people get a scene going, they do amazing stuff, but it kind of falls apart. And also people, move, you know, the bands change and the, and they kind of get into other stuff or they just give up and they get, and they get straight or whatever. And that's something that is really, I guess, unique is that with Discord and DC in general is the consistency, just the um, never stopping. And it's and not really, um, also not exactly, uh, I mean, I don't, maybe other people would disagree, but not being stale either. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like flogging the same horse for the, the past 40 years. Um, and it's certainly not riding on its own coattails, even though it really easily could. Uh, um, and it does more, you know, now the coattails really are f flying ahead of everything else. I mean, people are just so interested in the old stuff. Um, but it's not, uh, but I don't think that people rest on that, you know? Well, I think even philosophically, like the fact that everyone is so in line with, you know, like there's been a couple of bands that obviously signed to major labels or, went outside of the scene but for the most part everyone's kind of like had the same uh philosophy and even shifted and like you know like when Re revolution summer happened were there any bands that were like no fuck you guys let's keep with the hard shit let's keep moshing or was it like it seems like everyone almost on mass was like yo fuck this there's too many skinheads here there wasn't like a band that's like yo but the skinheads are kind of cool and the shows are wild I'm sure that those those bands, but we're not talking about them today, are we? Well, yeah, that's what I, I can't think <laughs> you know of who that saying? would be. Yeah, yeah like you I know. don't know. There was some for sure, but they also uh, the thing was it wasn't that cool. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. a good situation, and so the people that were uh, you know maybe um, spending time with that energy, it's it's a short it's a short story. That's all I'm saying is that it doesn't last that long when you. Uh, uh, you know pursuing kind of um the, that kind of shit um but um but for sure they were banned but i don't think anybody was doing anything consciously i do i honestly think it's just uh again it's sort of like we're having this sort of um hindsight revelation you know you're seeing things by looking back um uh, but we're not uh but just like we were saying before like if you were to try and write your punk rock history book it, you can't do it because there, there are thousands of bands and people that uh, uh, just don't fit into the story uh, in this longer thing. I mean, it's just massive. And it's, um, 
uh, and and it's messy, you know, and mm. um, not everything is is, but it, it was happening c- concurrently at one time, and it didn't seem like you know we when Revolution Summer, you know, uh, yes, there's flyers that say Revolution Summer, but nobody knew it was going to be a, an actual Revolution Summer. It just got a, a tag put on it, and it did seem to have you know there did seem to be a, a shift at that point, um, but it's been really cemented as in lore, but it's also in the moment, just like the moment we're in right now, I got, you know, whatever concerns you in this world, um, it's good. You don't know what it's going to look like until you, until you're looking back on it. Um, but right now it just always seems like unnerving, <laughs> you know, like whatever we're doing. And even then it seemed very unnerving, just unknown. Well, that's why I think it's so fun to look at this stuff because it's so much less unnerving than <laughs> looking at the real world right yeah. now you know yeah can, i can see that yeah uh, but also i i think that's the thing that's fun to look at with dc and study particularly punk rock history obviously there's so much music there as we keep going talking about but like specifically punk rock history in dc is because it is very studyable and because you don't see this response in la to the violence that comes you don't see sort of like a conscious like even if it was unconscious but like this mm-hmm on mass kind of shift to survive and to kind of preserve that's interesting yeah I, I suppose you're right about that i don't know of another place that recognized the problem uh and then took it head on um and and believe me you know ha- having been there it's not like i mean you know i'm talking actual uh face-to-face either um confrontation or, or discussion, you know, uh, I remember doing a show at St. Stephen's um, and there was a, a table full of literature and some skinheads came and flipped the table and were like, and tried to run away. And we all, and a bunch, not we all, but a number of us ran after them and stopped them in the street and we didn't fight with them. We had like a not very uh, calm discussion uh, about what is your problem? You know, what is, what is going on here? What's, what do you, and then there's all this, this is right when uh, there's a lot of Krishna influence and, uh, and people would get these sort of um, uh, excuses for the, I mean, or whatever reasonings, I guess you'd say for why they were doing things. And so you get to hear what people's uh, impetus is, but still just doesn't, it's not a good enough situation. So you, anyway, these, these are um, real changes, you know, that, that, but you're, um but it's not not easy you know it's mm-hmm. just uh uh but um but yeah the, I, I i don't really know of other another scene where people really i mean i'm sure there is but i i just can't think of it right now that where uh bands took it on the uh uh took a, a stand against something or tried to change something about what was happening um you know it doesn't make it all go away it's just um you just don't have to be a party of it. You don't have to let it happen in your midst. You know, you can, you can uh, have, you can engage and, and do something. Well, even the way like that, the approach to dealing with something like that, which as you're saying a few years earlier, when you're fighting these lumberjack dudes in Windsor, it's, it's a different way of, obviously the lumberjack dudes might've been, even harder to reason with, I guess, compared to the yeah. skinheads. But they didn't have Krishna. <laughs> no, <laughs> but but still, like the fact that you're at a point now where you're like, no, we want to talk this out, and just sort of the approach to yeah how you well, deal with things yeah. like this changes. Yeah, well, you're maturing. Well, 
Yeah, you're maturing. Probably got your ass beat a few times. I mean, lumberjacks are tough. Uh, <laughs> you know, you don't want to mess with everybody. Yeah. Uh, so that's a kind of a thing. That is a growing up. That's boys. That's uh, growing up. Uh, first, you're afraid of everything. Then you think you're not afraid of everything. And then you uh, meet somebody who's, you know, who, who can remind you what, uh, what it is to be humble. And then you, you, you get a little, your vocabulary um, gets more developed and you can figure out how to talk about a feeling instead of actually just act on it. Um, yeah. The Stern brothers, I think, talked about it when they were on the show, like how intoxicating that first time you realize that you don't have to be picked on feeling is for punk yeah. rockers. And that was like what really they happened, know. you know? Yeah. yeah. Like in California, when they finally were able to outnumber the jocks and turn around and fight yes. back. Yes. It's, it's powerful. I mean, so when you find your tribe and you got, uh, no, I mean, I remember lots of small examples of that here in DC where you just, cause it really, you know, first you're just a whole bunch of individuals who look strange and you're, and, uh, it's you know you're you don't know if you're going to get to the record store or to school or, or or down the hall or whatever and then at some point when you are in a situation where the, uh, you don't have to be afraid and the person that you fear is actually afraid of you or not you in particular but this they're not so tough anymore mm. it's it's pretty satisfying but that is pretty also uh, juvenile <laughs> you know it's like it's a time it's a time that you need to have that happen but it's uh, you don't want to stay there if we can help it. Uh, what do you think when you saw Boston and the stuff start kicking up in Boston with the exclaim scene? Because, um, you know, I think it's certainly the first scene that really catches fire after DC comes. Yeah. Down. Yeah. No, I love the, the energy. Um, I did think they're just like overboard, you know, like it was just too much for me. The, uh, um, the first sort of, time uh, i think it was when ssd came down and there's a show at um at uh woodlawn hb woodlawn school that where we uh, doa actually played there the yeah. second time through yeah yeah um when dave greg was in the band um and might have even been that show i don't know but anyway it was around that time uh but ssd folks came and and there was some you know somebody started dancing and then at some point there's like a pig pile and there was a kid who was just a high school kid who went to the school. It was just like an innocent hippie kind of guy. And and I feel like his ribs all got broken. Like, you know, he got beaten up pretty bad or hurt pretty bad, let me say. Um, and I thought it was really because the Boston guys are just being too intense, you know. Um, but I did hear like years later to my chagrin that it was actually somebody, a DC person who kind of put the boot in more so than, and uh, so they, they got a, a bum rap, but I do remember that feeling of like, whoa, what the, what is, what's the, what's happening here? Cause they just are, you know, it's such a, a pig pile with it. That's their idea of fun, you know? Um, uh, yeah. No, but, um, but I love the, the level of the energy and um, no, they're just great people. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, all these scenes after DC comes to town and that influence kind of goes there. Like you see it in New York too. Um, there's almost like, uh, like you got to escalate it. You got to be more intense than the, the thing that came to town. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even in your own town, you want to escalate. I mean, that is, that, that is, a, we're always refining, you know, you find a mm -hmm. thing that you like, and then you try to 
uh, you know, what's his name? He always says kick it up a notch on, on the cooking show. Oh, uh, uh, is that Emerald Lagasse? <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta kick it up a notch, you know, like it's, it, why not? You just want to, just like anything else, if you're a skater, you know, like you, you get to the tile and you're like, oh, I got to the, t- I'm going to get to the fucking coping, you know, like you, yeah. it's, you just always take it a little further. And, uh, and people do that with their own scenes and they do it vibing off of each, you know, like different scenes, but also off of each other. I mean, that's, Certainly, I think the DC story was, you know, when uh, hearing Bad Brains play and and they're playing so fast and and accurately, mm-hmm. and so you begin to and it sounds so great, you know. Um, um, and I think uh, well, the Dickies also really, to me, were a band that um, played really fast and accurately, and and Bad Brains actually used to cover. Uh, they did a lot of cover songs, if you can believe it, early on, but they would do the Dickies version of Paranoid. Uh, I think it's paranoid. Um, yeah, they do the yeah, paranoid. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and that's sort of when I got the, you know, realized like, oh, you just take a slow song, you play it faster, a little bit faster, a little bit faster, and you keep refining it until you get, and that's sort of what how the music was going, and and as it's going faster, you're getting more excited. Um, and I think that uh, in every level, like when people are making music uh, in their bands, they're just always reaching. You know, you always want to go a little further, a little harder, a little faster. Uh, why not? Uh, that's that's exhilarating, and um, and I think that that's a lot what what was happening everywhere. But uh, and also just trying to find that further intensity. Um, but that's that's a kind of a. I mean, not all music does that, but mm-hmm. punk rock does it, and that was you know for me the major attraction when I was a teenager, for well, sure. Well, that's why punk survives, I think, and that's why we're still talking about this scene where. You know, I know I've aged out at this point. There's a whole generation of kids that, you know, are, are listening to this music now and are inspired by this music and are taking it into a different place than I took it. And oh yeah, they yeah, will eventually amazing. age out and there'll be a bunch of kids that will take it from them and do something with them. And I, you know, kind of reject their people that came before a little bit. And, well, you know, I was going to ask you, like, were you a fan of, or did you ever check out bands like Battery or Damnation AD or any of that stuff that kind of... Yeah, I mean, I would always go to the shows, um, but I didn't like follow them with the same. I think it's partly because of that thing where I was describing the those first impression mm-hmm. things that that by the time that those bands came along, um, I just I could recognize them. You know, it wasn't as totally unique to me, but I know that other people who were younger than me, uh, more their age, that was blowing their minds. You know, they were having that feeling with. Because those are the bands they're doing this, this the same thing you know they're going they're taking it to the same place the same limit mm-hmm. um or just a little over the limit hopefully um and uh but yeah no i i would go see them but i didn't really you know i didn't buy their records i didn't uh i mean i had some but i you know wasn't really following it quite the same fervor but i i always go to the shows i mean that's the one for me that uh, you know that i i like going to shows i just like being i, I like the uh, I like it when it's so loud that I can't have a conversation. I like it, uh, you know, when things are happening and, and uh, I don't know, it's just a um, way preferable to me than, than records. I like records as an example, um, but, and I certainly listen to them, but it's not how I follow bands generally. And I just like going to shows and seeing live music. Well, like, you know, like, well, you brought up the bad brains earlier. Like that band is a band that obviously the records are, unbelievable but you watch any of those videos and it's 
I know, have, and, I, and I heard they're not even the best shows that we have on those story absolutely. videos. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And also, I would say, if, you know, weirdly, with the bad, I mean, I love listening to their records. The Roar cassette, uh, I would say, and the cassette, not the re-release, the cassette, mm-hmm. uh, I believe, uh, uh, is the best example of of documenting the bad brains that i've heard but no other record including their first single uh and all the other ones to me i mean i'm they, i'm sure they're satisfied with it because you know they worked on the production but for me the uh that that roar cassette was just you know that got really really close to the way i felt about them live um and it's not you know that's the thing it's like uh, that's just my my hang up about wanting to see them and hear them the same way but um but they can do whatever they want when they make a record but uh, yeah you're never going to capture and i think that's the thing with hardcore like there's no way to capture what it is live you know like it's uh because it's so much more than just the band at that point right like there's these shows that are just you know it's everything else yeah, uh, half the time it's how you felt on the way to the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, what was happening to you? Like how much, who you were riding with? Uh, everybody's talking about you know getting ready for the show, thinking about it. You're wondering what you, if what you're wearing is going to you know if you're going to get laughed at by your friends or if they're going to think that's you know that you oh you finally got your Dr. Martin's red or whatever you know. All that is setting you up. So when you walk into the show, and then it happens to be. Uh, uh, you know, like Black Flag playing at the 930 Club for the first time, and you just you just wound all the way up already, and then they they play, and it's everything you can imagine, and it's ten times louder than a stereo could ever be, um, and they add stuff. I remember with Bad Brains, um, in uh, I think it's in Big Takeover, there's a, a bass solo that that Daryl used to do live, that is pretty buried on their album for some reason. And I just loved it. It was just like this crazy thing that just explode out of it. You know, it's all this stuff's happening. All of a sudden, the, the bass solo, um, and it would just explode out of the whole jumble of music. And it and it just takes it one notch further. You know, you're just already uh, wound up. And so things like that 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 are just happen in a show or some you know or yeah. I mean, there's it's just so much more than than um, listening to a record, even though that's also really good. I think it's really interesting to kind of compare and contrast sort of like the the discord look at dc uh internally and build things up internally versus the bad brains approach to what they did with their career like when daryl was on the show he talked about how he felt like the bad brains couldn't stay in dc and like he was you know as much as he respected the idea of building something in dc for them they had to go other places and for that like you know, I think he kind of alludes to it, but they, for that, they ultimately compromise rights to the records in some cases. Oh, yeah. Certainly, you know, They're, like, yeah, um, they ran into a lot of confusion that way. Like, um, and that is the risk. I mean, that's the, the price you pay, not just the risk you take. That's the price you pay mm-hmm. when you uh, let go of some of that um, and you take a chance. And um, uh, and they could seem to, you know, from the very, you know, they, they tried to go. When, the, when they play with the Damned at the Bayou in 1979, and the Damned were blown away, and Rat Scabies in particular, and he he's like, you know, you come come to England, and so they go over there, and and somebody didn't tell them they needed working papers or whatever. I mean, or maybe a lot of people didn't need them, but 
maybe at the airport, somebody looked at them and said, wait a minute, you know, we're going to, we're going to figure out some way to not let you into the country. And mm-hmm. they ended up having to come back. And, and so they took a chance and, and it cost them hugely. Because <laughs> um, I think their equipment got stolen upon return. They lost was, everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everything about it turned into like, that's a major, it's a, it's a crushing blow. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, it's enough to not get to play, you know, a, a tour in Europe with the damned, but then to lose your equipment on top of it, that's insane. And they've had that happen multiple times. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen their band, their equipment get stolen at a show and, and they weren't even playing. They just came by a, a gig in DC. Uh, it was in a neighbor that was pretty gnarly, you know, once upon a time. And, and I remember seeing these kids ro- running down the street, pushing all these amps on wheels and it was whoa so we were like chasing after them trying to get their equipment and they just weren't even playing you know they just were yeah. stopping by so anyway but they uh they but they're um leaving dc yeah that was they i guess they felt like they had to do it but um it was and probably a good idea but it's also would have changed everything if they'd stayed oh my gosh yeah like to think of those records coming out on discord where they would have had it, well, it would, it would have changed everything. Like their, their effect on New York would have obviously not happened, but yeah. those records would have sounded very different and would I think have. So. I mean, yeah. it depends on how much, you know, they're pretty, pretty smart guys and they know what they want. So mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, they may not, uh, the, the sound made, you know, they might've been able to, uh, actually, yeah, I just can't imagine really. Cause you know, like they're really excited about getting with Rick Ocasek. Um, and that is awesome that he did that, but it's also, I just thought that, you know, from listening to it on, from my end, I didn't think, I mean, I just seemed like there, there could have been some, it could have gone about it differently. Um, it would have sounded different. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, but they, you know, but who knows if it, the record would have even gotten made, you know, that's a whole other mm-hmm. thing is that maybe somebody wouldn't put it out if it didn't have Rick Ocasek involved. Um, but I don't know, but yeah, they, they, uh, they, they, there's a lot of X factors. One thing I'm always really interested in is the Yippie involvement in early punk and hardcore. Like DOA was managed by an ex Yippie. Uh, I think Bad Brains were too in the beginning. Um, certainly that venue wasn't that a Yippie venue? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was a, if you call it a venue, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was a it was a place that allowed every anything to happen. Is yeah, really yeah. what it was. Uh, but what they actually, I will I will say this is that I. Like at that time, I I didn't I didn't know uh, I didn't trust the yippies or the hippies. I didn't uh, particularly <laughs> like them, um, and and there seemed to be this other uh, component. It was really it's actually through the uh, the uh, the socialists, the the um, uh, whatever the revolutionary workers. I can't think of what they're you know, but they um, they were always around. And I think that they saw punk rock as their new blood. Like, mm. I mean, mm-hmm. and I saw them as vampires. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, we're the, when you see me as new blood, I cannot trust you. Like, you're going to drink my blood. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they they thought we were going to be the revolution that they hadn't quite got to. And I just, I was a child. I wasn't interested in their problems and, uh, and their concerns. And they were disappointed that we weren't, you know, there's a lot of that um, rejection of us. Uh, uh, because we weren't, um, you know, political science whiz kids or whatever. So there's, it's like they knew a little bit too much for it to be trustworthy. Um, but they also were in, in, 
interested in the same thing that we were, which is that energy. Mm. And it's that same energy that's uh, that's the reason I'm you know talking to you at this hour. You know, we and I, you and I are psyched. You know, we're t- we're so happy to be. Uh, this is my uh, it, this is my life force. This is my energy. Is is uh, thinking about all the things we're talking about. Um, you know, I yeah, I, I put something into it, but I get so much more out. Um, and that's what the the yippies are. I mean, they're real. They're looking for that. They want that. And mm-hmm. the, the punks are doing the same thing. And uh, I mean, this is all I can just verbalize this now. But that's not what anybody knew then. We were just they were just in the same place doing this, you know similar things. But yeah, it is interesting. I do think that. I mean, I think DOA. I mean, I feel like Canadians in general. I was so surprised at how smart they were about politics so early on. The bands were, um, uh, and and took things like deadly serious. You know, when I think about um, uh, um, a, a subhuman guy, yeah. yeah, yeah, was it Jerry Useless? Is that uh, yeah, Hannah? Uh, Jerry Hannah, right? Yeah. yeah, sorry, went to prison. Like, I mean. Yeah. Uh, and I was blown away, like, cause he didn't, he's not talking the talk. He's doing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I knew so many people who really had a lot of things to say, but they weren't really, uh, you know, like, I don't think Jello Biafra went to prison, uh, but he sure did have a lot on his mind. <laughs> you know, like, um, he's inspiring, but, uh, when it comes to putting his shoulder to the wheel, not everybody's willing to do it. And I felt like Canadians were, were hardcore about all that stuff. And I learned a lot from them, but, um, uh, but it is interesting to think that that uh, that could have happened for bands. I mean, it did in some respects for bands in, in America, but I think there was a, a distraction before you know, before that happened. Well, you were the first one to hit me. I think DC in general knows a lot about Canadian punk and hardcore. Obviously, we talked about that DOA influence, but you're the mm-hmm. first person to hit me to the Vile Tones cover existing that Ian played me the next day, uh, the Bad Brains covering the Valtones. Yeah. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and who would think, I mean, the mm-hmm. singer's name is Nazi dog. Yeah. You know, yes. <laughs> <And> like, cool. <laughs> and then, uh, but yeah, that was such a good song. And then they would get Henry to come up and sing it. I mean, you know, it was like, uh, yeah, that was an important record. Well, it's, it's funny too. Cause like Daryl still, when he talks about it, gets excited and about how, you know just how important that record was to him and the rest of the bad brains in terms yeah. of a sound that's yeah that's interesting yeah I, I don't doubt it i mean it's just and it's just an accident you know it really is just uh uh having a curated uh delivery system having a i mean you know sid um sid mccray who was like fl- flowing them these records that you know really kind of uh and i don't know exactly where he's getting them he just is because they weren't that easy to find um but i guess the same place as anybody just going to, to records small record stores and and taking a chance but um finding awesome stuff and uh um yeah and and yeah it's just incredible to hear um things like that that kind of energy coming out of a record and then when it lasts all the way through. I don't know. There's, there's a few things like that. I mean, there's small bands from other places that I remember like um, Satan's rats from England that uh, have these singles that uh, not many places can I go in the world and bring it up and people know what I'm talking about. But if you talk about it in DC, pretty much everybody knows and, and owns all those records and you know they're just tremendous, but you know, well, I think the, the most, the, the most, 
sort of potent example of that to me has always been the Empire record and yeah. the effect the Empire record had on the sound that came out of your scene, but yeah. where that sound, that influence, like the ripples of these things are immense, you know, like changed pop music. And it, Empire yeah. was a critical failure in England. <laughs> yeah. A commercial failure too. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's fine. I mean, I'm sorry for them. It's not good, but I do, but that never, never even occurred to us to think about that. It was just too good. Like it was just, mm -hmm. uh, but um, it's funny because there was, during uh during all the you know pandemic shutdown stuff um it's probably the first podcast i mean i've hardly ever done any podcasts by the way like you're the first person i've done twice and even the first one i didn't know what i was doing dante called me and said come down to this panel thing and i was like well i have no idea what you're talking about well you're okay. killing it again alec you're doing okay, really good, good. so don't Fine. worry <laughs> great okay good anyway we did uh uh these guys in england got a hold of i guess it had to do with the faith live thing that came out there was like a this faith playing with, with bad brains at cbgb's 1982 i guess um that got released and then somebody they, uh, these guys in england want to do a podcast interview with us but they really they played they before the show they these two guys listened to the i guess they're just fans or whatever but they 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 Put together a place playlist of bands that they think that they think of when they listen to dc bands mm. and would just start playing stuff and some of it i was just like where are you getting this from i don't even know <laughs> but when empire came on both michael and 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 ivor were like what like the, the instant you know like it they're it's exactly right you know they, they hit it on the head with that one um so yeah you're right there's certain things that just get right in there and and and, and change things well it's it's fascinating to look at generation x as a band where half of it's billy idol and obviously influences pop music and has that effect on wherever it went but empire through its effect on what you're doing has a massive effect on alternative music so you know generation x to me has always been one of the most influential punk yeah. bands because of that yeah yeah no they're they're phenomenal there's uh both those albums that i don't know if they had more than that the two that i'm, I'm aware of mm -hmm. um hugely uh, impactful on me and, and anybody i know i do remember thinking like that billy idol i just thought it was the, the coolest most hilarious thing that he would come up with that name like so ironic and he just but when he actually like went mainstream i just couldn't i was so shocked like i was so disappointed i couldn't believe it um I don't know why. I guess it was one of the early lessons for me where, where there was just people who actually just want to be successful uh, pop stars and celebrities and, and they're any way they can do it is fine. And I, I didn't think I thought punk rock. I mean, I really, you know, I, I believed in it, you know, and mm -hmm. I, and I believed that nobody would get, um, would, would use it as a stepping stone or whatever. Uh, that, and so when I began to see evidence of that, that was really shock to me i mean it it's fine i mean it is it, it but i was i don't know why i would have thought that about somebody i mean why why not why but i just thought that punk rock nobody would go for that first thinking that they're going to get anywhere i think that's i thought it was a, a a sure proof way to to get kicked out of the party you know like you can't you'll never succeed if you go this route and so that was my uh insurance you know like we're all going to stay down here together guys you know like we'll never make it don't worry like and uh 
I was wrong. <laughs> well, it's, I think it's the temptation of it all, right? Like it's it's hard to resist that, and certainly there were people from bands in DC that it's not that, that hard to resist it. Well, I, I don't know. Like I, I, you know, and I haven't had yeah. the impact you've had, but I've even found myself like at a certain point, you're like, well, like maybe it will be fun. Maybe I could try this, but that's what I think is also yeah. so impressive it's about your thing that you guys never did. You never did. Yeah. It's a very, it, that is, it's sort of a, uh, you know, uh, Greek, Greek tragedy kind of a thing. I mean, it's, it's an oft told tale. I don't know how many times you'll have to see it, but that's, you know, you always fly too close to the sun or you always, uh, sign with the wrong label or you always, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, somebody gives you a huge advance on your first record. Um, watch out, you know, it's not, it's, it, but I guess, it's worth trying. I don't know. I mean, works it's, out for some people, not many, but yeah. Well, it's interesting right now, uh, as of today, like Blink-182 announced their reunion and Turnstile is the opening band. So mm-hmm. here's a band from DC that so far seemingly has made all the right moves that classically bands that have tried to do this have died on the rocks with, you know? So it's interesting to kind of see, you know, arguably the most commercially successful punk band, certainly of this era, is once again another band from dc but like so it's such a different way of approaching it than other bands in that city had specifically yeah. from hardcore i mean yeah well you're right and it's also when i when i say something like that i'm really just referring to all the uh, tragedies mm-hmm. you know that they sure there's people who make it and do other stuff well that's but that's the only fun. one i can think yeah. of like you know right. like there's hate breed obviously there's certain bands that have come out of hardcore that have done well right. but in terms of like you're saying it's it's more more cautionary tales than success stories right and it's but it's also i guess because of the nature of the music i mean it's when you're doing it honestly you're putting it all out there and Mm -hmm. and you're already in danger you know you're just in danger being in your band with each other you're you're taking you're going doing things that are uh uh you just don't know you're lighting a fuse you don't know which how it's going to go mm-hmm. and um even if just in a regular tour you know just trying to get in a, in a van or whatever vehicle with a bunch of people and go to different places and it may be you know six shows in before you realize like i don't like so and so or i want the band to go this direction or all these things start happening so it's already kind of fraught but um so when you do start making those really big decisions uh it it's it's not surprising that it that's the real te- you know everything else is a minor test but then you get to these bigger things and it and it makes sense that that's a that's like the major uh sloughing point for that kind of thing but, do you think it's like you know with ignition because obviously you get the, these two classic records you know with faith there's the split and then uh, the the classic ep but you know none of these bands are are like long careers in the way that you have with like bands putting out LP after LP. Do you think it's because there is that intensity that you're approaching? 100%. At least with Ignition, I can tell you, Yeah, we, we recognized it before we even played our first show. We were like, I, you know, had, and we just understood that about each other. Like, I don't know how long we can do this. Let's do it and see how long it, you know, how long it is. Um, because, it, you know, we just, had a completely um 
forward trajectory. Like, you know, I think our second show was on tour. Like we played one show in DC and then we were on tour. We were in West Virginia, I think. Um, and we did a whole US tour. We just did and just tried to go as fast as we could to do as much as we could before the wheels come off. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I'm glad that we did, you know, like it, I, that, all of that was amazing stuff, but it's, it was not well planned out. And we did not have anybody to save us from ourselves or each other. Uh, we did not have a, a tour manager and a band, anybody who's who had the idea of like how to keep this operation going. Uh, you know, just nothing like that. Um, so that is that's helpful in a band if there can be a, a vision, uh, a little you know beyond today or whatever or this this tour or something. Um, and that's but all that is is a hindrance, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a goal, then you're I'm then you're already lost, you know. In my <laughs> You know, just, just go. Well, it's such a pure way to approach art, you know, where if it's not anything but the moment that you're creating it, be it in the studio or be it in the live setting where there is no, like, what is this for? What is the, well, it's like the antithesis of, of like, you're talking about that rock star thing that people are doing. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's pretty it's a, it's a pretty safe bet, you know, like mm-hmm. you, if you've already figured out what the risks are and then decided that they're, they're minimal, then it's worth doing. But I, uh, you know, I, I, have, I remember talking to somebody once who was trying to help me out professionally, uh, which is very kind of them. And, uh, and they were discussing, and then they said something like, you know, what you need to do is um, you need to, like, let's talk about what you have like in your talent, basket or whatever like you need to exploit your strengths and i was like but i like to explore my weakness that's what i like to do like i don't need to know Uh, i i just and it's um it's not the best game plan i will tell you that i don't recommend this to anybody this is not a good you know if you want to succeed don't do don't do it the way i did it um and i because i you know that's but it's still a, it's just a habit and it does keep you a little more honest and also less disappointed. I mean, like everything I've ever done, I feel is pretty much a victory because I did it. That's all that, that was my, that was my entire bar. You know, <laughs> yeah. I didn't have any, uh, I don't have to do it better than somebody else. I don't have, I mean, I sort of do. Yeah. I mean, I want to do, I, I do try to, you know, kick it up a notch or whatever, but, um, but you know what I mean? Like I, I, I just, gave myself very uh low, low expectations because it's hard enough you know just it's what i always tell people about making visual art it's like if you made it just to do it is a fantastic thing you know like it's try not to get hung up on on where you should be or what it, uh or what's popular right now whether we should be painting birds or whether we should be painting landscapes uh, i just do the thing you're doing and maybe in a hundred years after you're dead, somebody will like it. That's pretty amazing. You know, like it's um, just do it. But uh, it's, and I think that that's how I, that's my personal sort of philosophy. And it um, seems to have luckily worked, but uh, to a degree, as I said, I have low, low bar. <laughs> so, uh, but um, uh, yeah, so I don't know. So, so it's, it is weird when people have a, a it's not weird but it's 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 just fine when people don't take a risk and they know that it's going to be fine and they're going to uh, make a music that and and just you know they've got a, a brand that is is 
saleable and they and they just do it and um that's fine mm -hmm. well i went to a uh pizza place called fugazi pizza in montreal and there's a coffee shop here called major treat that has uh, a sheep true. on their logo so it, it might not be marketable to the people do making it, but it's marketable to people yeah. taking it. In. Well, Fugazi, I mean, is it with a Y? Because you know there was a Fugazi. No, uh... I know Fugazi. No, this is definitely a okay. very punk influenced box. So uh, you know, I don't yeah. think they're going to the military for inspiration on this one. It's fine. That's okay. Yeah, but I would say even that is great. You know what I mean? Like to be recognized, to be thought of. Uh, if it's worthy, if it's valuable to the people enough that they would name their business. In, in homage to it that's a pretty major uh accomplishment well and i think that's the 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 other thing that's amazing there's like a whole group of people that reject the post-revolution summer era of music that came out of dc you know they're just all about that first when you guys are little kids and the records you put uh -huh. out as little kids but i think in their rejection they're being inspired you know like whatever they're inspired to do it's still, you know, and if that's, once again, if that's the object of art, you know, then we're yeah. like, you want an, you want a reaction and you don't, you don't get to dictate what that reaction to your art is. And as long yeah. as you're not screwdriver and being horrible, if right. you're just sonically able to elicit that, that's kind of, kind of amazing, kind of special. Yeah, I would say that. And it's also an honest, I think, I think that's a good way to, you know, we were talking about those bands earlier that, that were sort of um, thumbing their nose at, at discord or like the hardcore scene or whatever it was and that they're, they're actually getting a you know getting steam off it you know there's an energy there mm -hmm. and it's um so i guess it's that idea of being you know it's not exactly flattered but it's still uh it says something that somebody cares enough about you to be annoyed by you or hate you or whatever like it's um and once upon a time that was my you know primary goal when with punk rock yeah. was yeah. you know like in the untouchables that was the first thing i could think of was like do everything that everybody hates yeah. <laughs> and then i know i'm doing it right because i hate them first you know i'm started it and if as long as i'm being like kicked out of this club by that jackass then I, or like if i if i can't break into your scene then i'm doing it right because i don't want your scene you'll think that groucho marx thing like i don't if anybody would <laughs> any club that would have me, yeah. yeah yeah like um that's not quite the not the quite the right analogy but you know what i'm saying like no, I, but just, it, I guess what you're saying backwards is, uh, yeah, yeah so it's, it's a backwards uh way of doing it but it still has the same energy you know um but and believe me it was not you know as a young person i didn't have any idea that that's what i was doing it was just the way i felt i was purely working on on emotion not on it was not clever mm -hmm. well that's i think one other thing that i love so much about punk and hardcore is because the only place that really you know you see it now definitely in rap music too obviously but like there's it allows you to look at the insights of a young person and it and actually values the insights of a young person so you have that's interesting you know like most of it's like rock and roll made by adults but this is the place where rock and roll is made by kids like the people yeah that yeah right yeah and i guess yeah you don't have much to work with besides the way you feel and that and uh uh and so you don't you're not confused about what it is to make a song mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um whereas with you know if you're trying to craft a rock song or a pop song that uh, has a general appreciation you're going to come up with something that is um timeless 
you know, or whatever, like some way that you, but do you, but for somebody who's just having a personal uh, observation or response to something as a young person, and they don't have a lot of um, language about it, they just are honest. They're just really direct. Mm. And I was, you know, like I remember that early on how frustrating I was, frustrated I was with music where I just wanted everyone, um, I felt so misunderstood. You know, and I would make these songs that are really direct, like I hate you or I don't do this or I want that. <laughs> I mean, it just seemed really to me pretty plain. Like uh uh and still I felt that uh, misunderstood. And so I kept trying to be more and then at some point it just flipped where I was like, I don't want to be understood, I don't want you to understand me anymore. I you know, there are people here that understand me, and I don't have to uh try and be. And so the writing changes, you know, the, the, the way that we interact changes. And then, and then later on, you just really abandon it. Um, and, and because I noticed people started misconstruing, they were misconstruing songs so, so wildly that I didn't even, there's just no way to contain it. You know, like it's mm -hmm. just out there. It's a, it's a, a it's gone rogue, you know, because a song that's in the world and there's people who are completely wildly making up stuff that's, and then I, you just have to get good with that and just say like, okay, that's, that's actually fascinating. Thank you for, I'm learning now. I'm learning. So it gets about, it's reflecting back and now I'm seeing it as a completely different thing. And that's more interesting to me now than anything. Well, yeah. Cause you can never control how your art's going to be taken up. You, you cannot. I mean, it's hard. And everybody gets to learn that lesson, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot about that. Um, we were just talking earlier about interviewing all these people and, uh, and I guess, do you look for the same story to be told by different people sometimes that would your or same era or something or. No, I kind of find it. That's the thing that I find fascinating. Like I'll talk to, you know, yourself and Brian Baker and it'll be completely different like reactions the same stimulus you know coming right in. yeah um, or is there like an, a particular event is what i'm saying like a, a thing that people see at the same yeah. time and then you're interested to hear i definitely well like certain ones yeah like like snl like the fear right. on saturday night live hearing that story from you know the void guys or hearing it from yeah you know people that weren't able to go because they were grounded like i think Right. That I, was, is... I was at home, actually. I was watching it with my mom back in D.C. <laughs> that I couldn't go. But yeah. yeah. But yeah. And there's that great uh, the thing. You, I'm sure you looked at the um, Punks and Tomatoes videos. Have you seen those by Jeff Krulik? Oh, I got to check it out. No, I have not. It's you'll you'll love this shit. But it's um, there's this guy here, Billy McKenzie, who's like old head scenes. He's on the back of the Teen Idols uh, seven inch. He's like looks he looks like it's like a like a rager i mean he's a rager yeah, yeah. absolute rager it was completely busted he and his running partner uh jay uh garfinkel uh we're just these two wild guys anyway uh jay's dead now uh, but billy survives and tells stories but he's the one that throws the pumpkin <laughs> right and so he tells the story in a way that you've never heard before uh, about how it all came to pass which i you know was never quite understood before but he's got some pretty good insights so yeah so to get to that the um that idea of like one event that I, all these people talk about and i remember when i um 
I like doing that too. And um, and I, when I worked at a, a used bookstore, this is probably 35 years ago or something, um, and I was s- stuck in the, you know, we had a bunch of different locations, but I, I worked in this warehouse that nobody would ever come in, maybe one person all day long. So I would just read all day long, like yeah. you know, 10 hours a day reading. You know, I loved it. And but I got into a project where I went through all the celebrities um, like Hollywood celebrities books about themselves. What do you call those memoirs? Autobiographies or autobiographies, yeah. biographies. I guess they weren't all, uh, but, and just read the one chapter about when the Manson uh, murders happened. I'm obsessed with that. A hundred percent. Yeah. Very interesting. Cause that is very a chirotic moment. That's when yep. there's when everything changed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so interesting to hear each person because they're all trying to like, get a piece of that even people who were really not you know they they probably were not in any danger or even you know but almost everybody like was about to go to the Sharon Tate's house that night for you know yeah. like 1000 people or you know or whatever it's just but it because it really impacted them everybody's got a, a hot take on it and they have to have that chapter in their book you know they have because everything did change really did and can you imagine being in the beatles at oh that my time gosh. can you I- imagine Right, scrutiny the yeah. You're writing songs and people are taking it. Then they go to town on you. Like Mm -hmm. you literally, that idea of having your uh, product, you know, your thing that you craft, you put it out there, and it gets so wildly misconstrued, and then also becomes scrutinized by everybody on earth. Um, And you really do have to figure out how to, I guess, how to handle that, but um, or not. Well, I think it's it's fascinating to look at the ripple effects of the Manson murders on youth culture, because I think it's really that clamp down on youth culture that happens, particularly in Southern California, but it happens all over America in the wake of the Manson murders. That, I think, is directly leading to punk and sort of that suppression of that youth energy is what creates something so dystopic. And these are the kids that grew up hearing about the Manson murders as little kids that are now grown up because it's really one of the first mass reported murders like that like it's still something that people talk about all these years later yeah well that and i I would say also similarly but not it wasn't the same cultural impact but um but charlie starkweather doing Mm -hmm. um because in that movie badlands it kind of you know massages the story a little bit or whatever but but you know he's this under you know he's a misunderstood misanthropic a uh, handsome guy who, who, you know, whatever, short circuits and does his horrible s- stuff. And and young people in that time, you know, when he's on the run, he's like Bonnie and Clyde or whatever. And people were like, wow, cool. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not cool. You know, it's mm-hmm. totally. But there was this element there that it was. And I'd say like the same thing happened with, with Manson also because you're right. I mean, he was uh, he would do those interviews that were really, you know, I remember well sitting and watching him on um like his Geraldo Rivera or something and and he would make these really good points like like the you know Supreme Court in the United States it's got the same number of, you know when they were formed there was this many people in the population and now it's you know 100 fold and why is there still the same and and I remember being like just blown away like wow he's so right you know then I didn't even think about all the other stuff that was happening that he's uh, responsible for um but it's uh, it did have a you know the, the, that time also just changed the way everybody 
behaved, I mean, so radically from what, what it was before uh, that you can't help but not have some kind of, um, you know, be influenced in some way. And, and for sure, I mean, I mean, all the, I mean, directly into punk rock with, with Black Flag and, and Sonic Youth and people just absolutely examining it. And I remember, um, you know, when, <clears throat> when Black Flag, first time they came through and they, they stayed at our house, um, on Beecher Street and in Ian's room, you know, we, we they all just slept on the floor or whatever. And I remember him interviewing them for this local zine, and and he's asking like, you know, what's the creepy crawl? Because they kept talking about creepy crawl, and I mean, you know, we knew about it, the idea of it, like I'd heard about it in, in the Helter Skelter book, I guess. But um, and then Des pulled out. Ian had like from when he was twelve. Uh, a whole series of uh, heroes of the NFL, all these like books about different, you know, like all the different superstar uh, football players. And Des just like pulls out this book and opens it up. And he says, you know, it's like when YA Tittle, who played for the, uh, uh, what the formerly known as the Redskins or the football team from DC, um, when he walks on the field and everybody on the other side just gets that feeling, you know, like, oh my God, it, that's creepy crawl. Like, and I remember thinking like, how did like, like he was just using that term, but also really giving the idea of like what that, what it means. Like they're that interested that they're exploring it as a way of like mind control mm-hmm. and, you know, or understanding it in those terms. And uh, and I just thought that was fascinating. However, when you really get back to it, like the the real uh, roots of it, it's just you know, it's, it's just horrible. You know, yeah. it's just terrible. Well, I think it's you know, and you still see it now. Like, look at the Dahmer film on Netflix, which is just disgusting, and it's right. the most watched thing on their platform right now. Maybe not is the most really? watched, yeah. but it's wow. it's definitely one of the more watched things right now on their platform, and it's there's almost like this disassociation that yeah. people can do where they pretend it's entertainment. Yeah. I mean, I guess you have to in a way, but it's, it is, it's nuts when you've had any kind, I mean, I just, it must be really terrible for the people that directly like mm. in that moment or in that time um, to have this stuff uh, picked up and, and looked at in a casual manner. But, um, but I guess it, it still has to happen. I mean, I guess it does have to like anything uh, that's that toxic if you can figure out a, a method of containing it in a way that it can be um, looked at. And, uh, and, and I guess it seems uncool. I mean, it is uncool, but also people do think about it. They do have to talk about it and they can't, can't uh, ignore the fact that it comes from reality. So they have to face that. And that's important that people do that, you know? Yeah. It's, it's been interesting in the last few years watching the true crime explosion happened because like you're saying it used to be kind of relegated to to well like you know like the red cross talking about manson you know or mm-hmm. you had to get a weird book by ed saunders from the fugs about right. manson you know like it was a little more underground and required a little bit of digging but now we have the cbc the canadian broadcaster has tons of true crime podcasts now and and right you know there's i just listened yeah i listened to them yeah and it is, it's because it used to be so lurid, you know, like, and, mm-hmm. or you'd get those um, like detective magazines where they're like pulp, you know, they really, but I remember looking at them and I liked that stuff when I was a teenager and just, but it was really, you know, it was just one step short of porn, you know, like, yeah, like yeah. it's just so uh, 
shocking and, and also, you know, worse in a way, obviously. I mean, it's the same kind of uh, allure, I guess, but it's because it's forbidden, but now it's less forbidden. And maybe, I don't know if that's a good thing. I mean, I don't know. Can't be, can't be that good, but it is a, a never, it's endless fascination for people. Well, speaking of endless fascinations and things that probably should not be talked about, did Gigi Allen ever come to DC? Did you ever see Gigi? No, you know, I I think he did come to DC. I thought I might have seen him, but I don't think now I know, yeah. I can't believe that would be true. But uh, we had a like he, he just seemed he's he, that's a person that that his legend precedes him in a way that I mean I don't think it was that interesting to go to. I mean, aside from dodging the poop or whatever. Uh, I just don't know how good they were when they played live. Um, I wouldn't have been interested, you know, like, I don't think I would have gone to see him. I do remember his, I think he, he sent around tapes way before they made records. I believe I remember hearing tapes early on and just thinking like, just not interested. And so no amount, no amount of like self-harm and nakedness and pooping and everything else and beating people up would, would draw me into the show. So I don't think I went, but it, uh, so no. But, Did you were, were you at that uh, cramp show where Lux vomited on stage? That is talking. No, about? yeah, no that uh, that was at Hall of Nations, I think. And no, I didn't go to that one. I, the first time I saw them was at uh, the. By then, they'd gotten on the on IRS records, and they were in. They're playing with the police. Huh. I remember it was uh, fashion. I think it's a band called Fashion. Then the mm-hmm. Cramps, and then the Police. We're all on a bill together because they were all in the same label, um, and it was the it was a uh, Stuart Copeland, I think. Miles Copeland. Miles Copeland. Sorry, right? Have you read his book? Uh huh. Oh, that's a good one. Their his their dad started the CIA. <laughs> yes, right. That's why everything's yeah, like they name their stuff like FBI, CIA, IRS. Yeah. yeah so there's a great funny. story about them trying. They're they're courting X, and I guess Billy Zoom came in and sat through the entire pitch. And then we're not working for some CIA op and like gets up and like storms out of the office at the end of it. Wow. Damn. That's good. <laughs> it's worth reading. It's a, right. it is, it, but yeah. like, it, well, it would be great just to hear because now that all the time has passed and they, they've had so much, I would love to read about all those bands, but yeah. So, so they played with the police. And I remember like that was just such a mismatch. Like nobody should ever follow the cramps really. Yeah. Um, especially not the police, but um that was the first time I saw the, them, and and uh, I remember the police came on and played two songs. I mean, I watched two songs and and left. You know, like they're not nothing there after the cramps. Um, but no, so I didn't see him throw up on the stage. But he did a lot of other stuff. I mean, everybody pulled his pants off, and that was shocking. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was very scandalous. I, I saw him in the '90s on the last, I guess, tour they did, and it was still. He was still like jabbing 100%. the microphone down his throat. Yeah, amazing. I took my mom to see him many years later at the Black Cat, and they did. Um, They're doing Surfing Bird, and and Lux is on the PA, and just I mean, and at that point, I don't know how old he was, but you know, it's pretty well into their career. Mm-hmm. And I kept, and I was like, my mom just grew to really like the Cramps. Like we'd play them all the time, and she, uh, uh, I think it was Lonesome Town, maybe that really, you know, but she was. And then there's this, I don't know if you ever heard it at the time or, or, but um, the Ramones did a prank when they were on tour, like they're on tour, I think it's at the same time as the cramps, you know, 
in the States and they're going around from town to town. Thinking, oh my God, did you hear that Lux Interior died? They just kept saying it, you know, like it was a complete prank and everybody, what? You know, and so they just put the rumor out there and, and it was back then, it, you know, now it's, it's all day, every day, you know, everything is such insanity. But uh, but back then they would, you didn't have very many ways of checking. Yeah, and you don't know who to call, and you know no magazine might cover it or whatever. They're not so going to talk about it on the radio. No, it's not going to be a not going to be widely reported. So it's kind of this, and I think Ian and I must have been talking about it. My mom was like, "What? I'm, that's terrible. Poor Lux Interior, poor man, or whatever." <laughs> like, so when it turned out that he was alive, and then you know, so she could see him and. So we went and, and saw that show and, and he was just being out of control. And I remember thinking like, you oh, know, my mom's going to be freaked out, but she loved it. You know, they, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, they never stopped putting out. It was so good. Yeah, they're like one of those bands that uh, were able to kind of do it in a way that it never became redundant, but still never changed the sound. Right. I mean, it's like they're like the the ACDC of Punkabilly. Yes. You know, yes. like they figured it out and and guess what we can do this every time and yeah. you're gonna like it and it's true i mean they just really uh i mean i i don't listen to a lot of their later records but i'm sure other people love them and it seemed like just live they that was a consistently good show well i i think it's the, getting you know the sonic youth record and this kind of goes back to what you're talking about a little bit earlier and hearing them play Nick Fit and having like trying to find my way into Sonic Youth as a fan and this lyrical density and then hearing Nick Fit and the speed and the frankness of it and being like, oh, I understand this. But then it was also seeing seeing the cramps on 90210 and like getting into the cramps around that time and then seeing them on 90210. Those are two major moments for me, milestone moments for me. Wow. I don't, I don't, I say I never watched that one. I know 210. And so I never saw that, but. Them and the Flaming Lips were wow. uh, were musical guests on a teen drama, which was very bizarre to see. But they had uh, musical numbers in some of the later seasons. Nice, yeah. It, well, it's like those moments and like that SNL; those things have right. those those effects. Like they were talking about those ripple effects, where th- that's where the next wave of kids kind of get their ears perked up to what's going. Yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. There used to be. Uh, I remember seeing uh, the Kenny Everett video show. Those some British comedy show that would be really late at night on on pbs here in the states and they would have like uh, uh i think that i saw motorhead maybe the first time and um oh young and, ones and, uh, well the young ones you're right yeah, yeah. Uh, that's right it was on young ones i saw that no not Kenny ever i don't know what was on there was something on that that something had like, punk kind of like yeah new wave and punk rock stuff that was it was you know something f- fresh on there that made it worth staying up and you'd sit through a bunch of really dumb comedy and then see these obscure bands and it was exciting but yeah that's right motorhead was on that was hilarious that was good during the height of that kind of anti-punk rock media freak out about hardcore and stuff like that was that ever prevalent in dc local media like wherever they're kind of like an attempt to vilify what you guys were doing in the same way that you see in you know some of the talk show shows in los angeles no no that never happened here um yeah, mostly it was ignored here. I just feel like, mm. and and still is generally, uh, and that's okay. You know, like we never. That was one of the things that's I think really helped the scene a lot was that we didn't have a radio station, uh, we didn't have anybody. Um, you know, there was a one 
station that would sometimes play stuff at like 1130 on a, you know, Tuesday night or whatever. <laughs> um, I mean, early on, there was a, a, a college station that was pretty adventurous down at Georgetown University, and then they, they got shut down and that hurt. Um, and then there was following up, there was another one called HFS that would sometimes play stuff, but not enough. So I'd listen to it. And then, so you just didn't really have to uh, think about it and you could just be in your band and nobody, and you were just, it was like um, Octopus's Garden, you know, like you're, yeah. you're just at the bottom and you can do whatever you want. And all the people who are trying to make it, uh, there's a lot of tumult up there and they can just do what they need to do. And you're down, just stay up there. Well, I could punish you for fucking ever, Alec. And I know it's so late. And anytime, anytime you can put up with me again and for a third time and come back on this podcast, please know the door is always open because it, as I, as I said earlier, you've done it so many times and obviously continue to do it in music. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the stuff you've done, man. Sure. And let's, and the stuff that I'm doing which is the Hammered Hulls uh, record. and With with our friend of the show, Mary Timoney. Yes. There's, all of them are just phenomenal players. And uh, so that is something that, that uh, I'm really psyched about. It's, it's, you know, this record is finally coming out. It took two years. Like, I mean, a lot of other people had the same issue. <laughs> I'm not alone. Or we're not alone. But, um, but yeah, the, uh, finally getting the record released and get, get some shows going and um, um and that's been really, I have to tell you, it's, it's been super interesting. It's been, you know, uh, 25 years probably since I played in a band uh, in a serious manner. Um, and to do this has been phenomenal. So, Well, when, when Mary was on the show, uh, like Helium is a huge, I fucking love that band forever yes. and ever. But, you know, finding out what a deep head she was for DC Hardcore uh like you know it's just so awesome that she's in this band with you because she's just like you know this this deep head hardcore kid and now you know doing it yeah and it's and it's a th fucking thrill man she's yeah. like, and she's playing bass and just uh you know she's one of the people that just has magic i mean you know yeah you know but just the the, the way that the songs came together was was incredible and uh, the way she played is amazing and yeah <laughs> So, like, you know, obviously the warmers were, you know, I know the reason I only tried to get you off the phone there is because I wanted to give you're you an out. Kind. But yeah, you're kind. Yeah. yeah but uh, if we, go, we can talk a little bit longer. Well, I just me. felt like I've been talking so much about myself and my whatever, but I, you know. Oh, I'll do a hard sell for the new record because it's fucking yeah. the stuff you're doing now is still like amazing. And I will plug that on the beginning and end extra and intro thing that I do. Okay. But, good. but I, I like, is your approach to doing it different after doing the warmers? Cause the warmers was such a radical break from ignition and faith. Um, in terms this is of, a, yeah, this is different. I mean, it's, or it's different than the warmers. The warmers was the differentest yeah. because I was trying to learn how to play guitar, which is the most humiliating thing I could do. This is another example of exploring my weakness in public on stage, you know, like where I'm, uh, I just loved the way that Amy played drums and Juan played bass and I didn't want a guitar player stepping all over it. So we, you know, we just thought about it and we're like, who can play guitar in this band? And we kind of thought of all these different people. And then I just thought like, well, let me give it a shot. My main goal was how about if I play the guitar in the most minimal way possible so that the, you know, the spaces and the rhythm and all that stuff is uh, not 
overlooked or over, you know, over uh, just or under, you know, buried under anything. So that was that. But then this hammered holes is now sort of a return, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. now I'm just all I need to do is is sing, but that's not easy, you know. And it's and it's also different now with what you're talking about, where we, you know, I feel a little more self conscious, you know, about stuff because I'm, you know, it's people are paying a little closer attention. Yeah. Um, than, yeah. than ever before uh and but you know I'm, i feel pretty confident with the people who are in the band so one thing i've noticed from talking to people on here is that like a pure lead singer quote unquote like a lead singer not hiding behind an instrument it's it is a much more vulnerable position to be in in a band because especially live right like you're engaged with that audience the whole time yeah yeah it's it, there's many times and in fact that half the time i'm on a stage i'm thinking like what am i supposed to do now like what mm-hmm. do, what do people do when they are up what's the what's the what do you guys want to do now you know like it's just there's moments of that where you just like it just doesn't make any sense um but mostly i just try to not have any i try not to think about anything you know that's that's when you get trapped is when you have those moments but um but yeah so it is you're right it's vulnerable i suppose do you approach every show like it's the last time you're going to play live? Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, it's not really. Not, I don't think that, but I, yeah, but I have no expectations beyond. I'm not trying to, you know, I don't care if there's a scout in the audience or whatever, you know, <laughs> that hasn't happened yet, but, uh, that I'm aware of, but, uh, but no, I don't think about it beyond like just trying to get, I'm just, I'm playing with the people that I'm with on the stage and that's and and I'm happy that other people are in the room too, and I want everybody you know enjoy it. But I don't, uh, I don't beyond that, I have no thoughts. Yeah, because it does. Um, I don't know there's like a my my Jonah who plays drums in my band uh, went to Japan with his other band, and was playing with a bunch of sort of these legendary Japanese hardcore bands, Burning Spirit bands, and they talk about this idea that like you want a complete discharge sounds kind of gross when you say that like that but yeah. you want a complete discharge on stage you want to leave a battery not not a not, yeah, exactly. not a bodily fluid yeah not a bodily fluid yeah, yeah. but you want everything yeah gone End it all. yeah yeah so if there's no show after this it was all left on the stage literally my credo leave it all on the stage every time like you just that's what people deserve nothing less why would you ever hold back? Because people went through the trouble of getting up and coming out and paying a dollar ninety eight and whatever else to get into the show. That, that, why not give it? And they get they'll give it back. You, you know, I'm telling you, it's like one of those things. You, uh, you know, you put it out, you'll get more back. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I do feel I feel bad because your dog's coming over now. I feel like I'm definitely like, go to bed. Go to bed, yeah. uh, Alec. Thank you again for doing this, man. And anytime. You bet. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Anytime, anytime you want to do it again, we can do it. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you, Alec, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Alec will be back at some point in the future because there's a lot more. A lot of stuff I forgot to ask Alec about, you know, did Alec ever see gut instinct? There, there's that question right there. There's a lot more. There's a lot more. Anyway, thank you everyone for uh, checking that one out and, and check out the new Hammered Hulls LP careening coming out next week on discord. 
and you can pre-order it now and, and check it out, depending on when you're listening to it. If it's out now, you can buy it now and order it now. Or But if you're listening to this when this first drops, get get psyched, check it out, pre-order it, because this is going to be a good record. Yeah, I know it. I know it. I can feel it. All right. On the next episode of this show, we're blowing the lid off the French house punk connection. This is a, uh, a big one. If you're like me and you like putting pieces together in this giant punk jigsaw puzzle that we've been putting together for the last few years, this is a big piece. I kind of always knew deep down that this was the case, but uh, we, we, we find out next week how, how true this is. From the band Phoenix, Thomas Mars is here, and boy, this is a good one. We go all over the place, and we talk about all your favorite French uh, dance music heroes and their punk bands. This is, a, this is a fun one. Well, that's it for the show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different races and different faiths, different nationalities, different beliefs, because this is, uh, th- these aren't political issues we're talking about. These are basic human rights issues. People deserve to be able to live free and, and to not have to fear for them, their safety and fear hate and violence. So get involved in organizations that are making positive change in this world. If you see an organization that's doing something you believe in, see if you can get involved. See if there's a way to lend your time or support, you know? Uh, I also add to this, a, a human rights issue, a basic human rights issue is ensuring that people have safe access to abortions and you know, got to, got to make sure that that's preserved. And that's in Canada too, because, oh my gosh, the election up here in Canada, oh, it's going to get scary. It's going to get very scary. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. Speaking of, uh, of getting involved, try and make your own culture. Anyone can do this stuff. Start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast. The world does not need any more podcasts, but you can do one. You should do one. If I'm doing one, you should do one. Anyone can do this. This punk is a, a culture based on participation and you never know where it's going to lead. You know, you never know who's going to hear what you do and get inspired by it or what you're going to be able to get inspired by from creating your own culture. So, so try it. Speaking of trying things, try meditation. I didn't believe in it at all. And then I tried it and my gosh, people are right. People for thousands of years have known this and have been talking about this, but I, I didn't believe them. But now I, now I do because I've tried it and it, it works for me. So maybe it'll work for you. Just use an app. There's like free meditation things on, on like YouTube and stuff too. Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. And they can guarantee someone else a lot longer life. So sign that organ donor card. And that's it. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode.